is uh, day two in a row of uh, live reports on what's happening in the land of Israel and Palestine. Uh, unfortunately, things have, as we assumed, escalated since yesterday. The official numbers are updating minute by minute, but from what we know, there have been over 400 rockets shot by Hamas and Jihad into Israel. Two women have been killed today. Hundreds, we don't know the exact number, but hundreds of um, airstrikes um, were carried out by the by the Israeli Air Force on the Gaza Strip. We know at least 20 have been killed, nine of them minors. The goal of what we're doing here today is to be able to try to give a more in-depth and nuanced perspective than what you're going to get on more news outlets. We're going to talk about how we got to where we are today, what we could potentially do to change the situation, and hopefully look into some de-escalation methods. Uh, joining me today, we have top right, Yunus, Palestinian from Ramallah. We have Gershom Baskin, an Israeli living in Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem. Yeah. And Bis Process, a Palestinian living in the United States. It's great to have all of you here with us today. Um, let's start with, um, I, I guess, Gershon, you had a very, uh, you, you made a tweet today that I very much appreciated. I thought the sentiment was right on point and it's very much uh, needed. So do you mind sharing that sentiment? Sure. I, I'll just read it. It's the easiest. Um, what I wrote is, uh, I sent it in Hebrew and in English. Of course, I didn't get to send it in Arabic. But what I wrote is this campaign is not military. It's political. When when will you understand 20 years of Qassams and you're still talking about deterrence? This is directed toward the Israeli military. Netanyahu has long chosen to keep a weakened Hamas in power and an illegitimate Palestinian authority in the West Bank so as not to negotiate with the Palestinians. It's not about Sheikh Jarrah and it's not about even Al-Aqsa. This is about the occupation. What do you really expect from the Palestinian people? That they will lie down and simply accept the occupation as if it's their destiny forever? Netanyahu and Trump, and perhaps even the Gulf states, thought that they could put the Palestinian issue in a bottle. So let it be clear, the bottle cap has exploded. The Palestinian issue will not go away. The solution is negotiate at the negotiating table and not on the battlefield. There is no deterrence against the people who will fight for their freedom. We as a people know that better than others. Thank you, uh, Gershon. Yeah, I, I thought that was very much on point. I covered this a little bit yesterday. It, it always surprises me how loud and prevalent the calls for strong retaliation, strong deterrence are, as if it's actually done something. And I demonstrated in many ways how we know that attacking Hamas aggressively in many ways is net negative and counterproductive. First of all, it kills, it kills innocent people, many children as well. It makes Hamas more popular, both domestically and internationally. It causes Hamas to get funding from the international community. In so many ways, it seems like a win for them. And even with this deterrence and our attacking of their destroying of their uh, missile capabilities, 
it doesn't seem to actually have much of an impact on their ability to shoot rockets on us. So it does not seem to be an effective approach at all, but still it is to, to even suggest anything other than a severe um, retaliation is considered a radical idea, which is quite, quite a shame. Uh, Eunice, you had an interesting, you had an interesting take. And and by the way, whoever's watching, you know, the, I'm, I'm not going to pretend like this is, you, you have like across the spectrum ideologically here, because we do have two Palestinians who I'm sure see the world slightly different. Me and Gershon aren't aligned on everything, but we're definitely considered left of center, uh, especially when it comes to Israel-Palestine. So um, it's there will be some perspective that may not be shared. What we're going to do is we're going to very much take audience questions and even we'll let audience members come on afterwards to try to get the full range of views. And we also will be do, making an effort to present the positions and the arguments that are made by people who currently aren't sitting here um, in this discussion. So Eunice, you, you had you told me something interesting that I've never thought about it. You told me that the PA, what, what, explain it, something about the, the PA's thoughts on rocket fire, that they don't support the rocket fire. Uh, yeah, yeah. Hi, everybody. Um, it's um, it, it, it's kind of uh, radical to think in those terms nowadays um, amidst everything that um, that is happening at the moment. Um, and it's a distant memory. It's a very distant memory. Um, and I would take you back to... Um, 2007, 2008, right after the uh, uh, what has happened in Gaza between Fatah and Hamas, between the Palestinian Authority and and Hamas, and back then um, the the rockets were or the missiles were used as a, as a, as a way to pressure the PA into. Um, um, like either stopping the negotiations that were still um, taking place up until 2013, um, either it, it was it was a it was a tool for them to kind of um, um, to kind of gain ground, publicity stunts. Um, it was. Uh, and and the Palestinian Authority has it has it has been a huge problem for the Palestinian Authority because uh, before they had to leave Gaza in two thousand seven they were in practically in control of the of the strip and any any attacks that took place from within the Gaza Strip were the the burden of which was um, uh, was given to the to the Palestinian Authority because. Um, but I mean by Israel. Um, so whoever controls Gaza, the, the burden of the uh, the missile attacks is on them. So um, the Palestinian Authority kept saying that, "Why are you doing this? Why?" Uh, like it's just um, they used to use the word "abathy," which means playful in Arabic and. Um, useless, like practically useless just for um, entertainment. That they, These were the uh, the words of the officials back then. 
uh, prior to 2007, uh, because it was a, a huge embarrassment um, for, for the PA back then. So they used to call them the flying pipes. If anybody would remember from that era back then, uh, they would recall this. And I, I remember this as a teenager. They would call them the flying pipes. And this would make, um, of course, those who were in charge of the, the groups who used to um, launch these rockets, um, th they would make them very angry, um, as you would expect. Um, so it was a couple of things for the PA. It was political embarrassment, especially amidst um, a round of negotiations from back then. It was to show and to express that the PA wasn't in control back then in Gaza. Um, and it was to generally inflame the, the situation. So that, that's my distant memory from uh, what was going on. And the perspective of uh, um, of the person authority in general, but that wasn't like that was. Um, you would say you you would think it of also the the stance of many Palestinians who were directly harmed by the Israeli retaliation. Um, all of these poor people who had to endure the. Uh, the fatal consequences of um, of these rocket attacks, and and it was never balanced. You know, it, back then the the Gazan rockets were primitive, were very primitive, and and the the range of which was very short, um, and and it didn't make as much damage as it would do today. Uh, but yet the retaliation, the Israeli retaliation, was just as as strong and and even worse back then. Um, and there have been always so many victims. And consequently, a lot of Palestinians have been strongly against um, <clears throat> the, uh, uh, the use of rockets in, in terms of as, as a means of resistance because it's, it's imbalanced. It just, yeah, I'm, I'm going to get to that later on, but that's just to uh, answer your question for now. Thank you. you know, something? Yeah, sure. I, I think that during so-called peacetime, when it's quiet, um, I agree with Yunus that a great number of Palestinians are against the idea of using rockets. However, when there is conflict going on, acute conflict right now in violence, in my sense is very strong that uh, a great majority of Palestinians uh, are cheering on Hamas for uh, having the courage to hit Israel. I think you said in your opening that the more uh, Hamas hits Israel, uh, the more popular they become. Whereas during periods of calm and quiet, people are more critical of the corruption within Hamas, of the bad leadership, of the lack of ability to deliver services. Yet today, I would think if you would go around all over the West Bank and even all over Gaza, even while they're being hit very badly by the Israeli Air Force, the overwhelming majority of Palestinians feel a great deal of sympathy and support uh, toward Hamas for having the courage to take on Israel, where the Palestinian Authority is viewed as ineffective, weak, and irrelevant. So it's it, it's like it's clear why Hamas benefits from rocket fire, and we seem to just play into their game. Um, 
very easily like we we do exactly what they, we do exactly what what they hope we would do there's a clear in, in line response. of cooperation between Netanyahu and Hamas a clear what sorry you you cut out line of cooperation between Netanyahu and Hamas uh, they're playing into each other's interest right they they need each other because um Hamas and Netanyahu have been like struggling for legitimacy like for the past like year you know um Hamas wants to be a legitimate replacement of you know uh, Fatah and Netanyahu wants to be the can keep his legitimacy as prime minister and it's important to you know and we both I think we all hear that these these attacks are useless they don't actually you know accomplish anything uh, you know Israel has been at war with Gaza since you know for like 16 years and Hamas has been launching rockets for like yeah, even longer than that, I think. And they haven't even accomplished any of their goals. And in any other situation, if a politician, you know, kept proposing this a solution that didn't work over and over and over again, they'd be laughed out of the room. But if you have a situation where people are afraid and you can capitalize on that fear, you can, you know, um, make it appear like you're doing something and, you know, gain further legitimacy. Right. So let's let's really start to talk about what what we can do differently because as we mentioned that the our the natural inclination for most people is we get hit we must hit back and this is this is on both sides right uh, a mindset of retaliation is very much deep wired into the human psyche what we need to do in order to change the 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 collective sentiment around uh, retaliation is to be able to coherently propose a, a better idea. Um, and one, one clear thing is Gershon, what you said, uh, we're going to solve this at the negotiating table, not on the battlefield. When rockets are flying, right. When, when there's bloodshed and, and we're at war with one another, that's when people are least open to hearing Uh, let's negotiate because negotiation is seems like a long-term process when people need immediate responses. So what can, what can we tell Israelis and Palestinians um, a better approach to a direct violent retaliation? How do we deescalate and how do we put out their ideas um, that, that will really help us help bring us closer to reaching a solution to this conflict? Yeah, I, I think that uh, it's fair to expect that our military people will make the threatening remarks that they make, retaliation and deterrence, etc. I expect from leaders to be statesmen and stateswomen and to look beyond the immediate to the future. And I am, my, my Jerusalem Post column, which is also published in Al-Quds and in a Hebrew website, tomorrow actually ends with quoting Yasser Arafat and Yitzhak Rabin at the Oslo signing ceremony on September 13th, 1993, when each one of these leaders reached out and spoke directly to the people on the other side saying, we want a different future. We don't want to harm you. We want to live in peace with you. We want to have a better life. We want your children to have a better life. And those are the kind of remarks that I would expect from people who are leaders. But we don't have leaders. We don't have statesmen. We don't have stateswomen. We don't have people with a view toward the future. 
The immediacy of staying in power is what concerns them, and therefore what they do is play into the populist culture of let's hit them, they hit us, then let's hit them harder. It's a very strong rallying cry, which uh, appeals to many people. This seems to be uh, an unfortunate paradigm that many nations are stuck in, and democratic nations, right? It's the leader who can come and and rally people using fear are often going to be more effective than people having uh, messages of um, of rationale or peace, whatever it may be. Fear is often our, our deepest uh, driver. So no, they won't it's be almost, more effective. They'll be more popular, which is not the same as being effective. More more effective at rallying uh, people for votes. More effective at gaining popularity, not more more effective at at make creating a better situation. That that's for sure. I think. So, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Beast. We need to do, we need to take this into our own hands, and um, we need to do something that's very very difficult. There needs to be a a, a movement, you know, specifically against kind of these. Um, you know, useless retaliations, um, and in the name of you know, because if if there is, if uh, I think it's called Operation Guardian of the Wall over the Wall or something like that. Um, if if that if that operation is commenced, we're going to deal with you know severe civilian casualties in Gaza. We could have a situation where you know. Um, another you know 500 children could die and we could see unfortunately a lot of israeli civilians you know get uh killed by hamas um uh you know the the solution is is we need to have to create you know very very power a very very powerful movement within israel and within um if it's possible within gaza i don't know but if it's possible within uh Palestine. That's harder to say because there's more restrictions on, you know, political activity there. But within Israel and within America, that opposes um, kind of escalation. Yeah, agreed. Do you do you see this movement as something that Israelis and Palestinians work on together, or do you see it as two distinct movements in each of our societies? Well, Israel is it's um it's an Israeli and Palestinian you know country. So, in that sense, yeah, they will have to work together. Um, the Israeli, the uh, the Jewish Israelis and the Arab Israelis within Israel, I think um, they would be very very it would be very very good if they were to work together towards um, their goal and organizing against escalation. Uh, that would be very very good. Um, and, I want. I want to. It is important that people reach out, um, but we also have to focus on what we can do. And in, if you're someone in the the West Bank, it's going to be you know harder to interact with um, an Israeli. Um, so they should focus on I, I, to to the extent that like a communication is possible. They should totally communicate, and uh, you know the the two parties should definitely coordinate in that sense. But you know, the movements have to focus on pressuring their respective governments. Sir, you cut out at the end. We need to focus on pressure. Pressuring our prospective governments. Okay. Respective okay. governments. Sorry. Respective governments. Uh, understood. 
Um, Eunice, what, what are your, what are your thoughts on this? Um, I mean, in, in general, the, the way to move forward is, uh, it's, it's very clear, um, that certain things to be made and certain steps need to be taken by officials and those in power. Uh, the general idea is that, um, Israel has more power, but the problem is Israel keeps pretending as if it's on par with the person authority or Hamas. Um, they need to understand that they have, uh, th this is something I think most Israelis don't understand, but they do have the ability, complete ability to flip the situation around um, in a way that would benefit everybody. But unfortunately, um, the far right elements of the government and, and the Israeli government and, and, and those who um, those who influence the, the, the policy making uh, won't let that happen. Um, so, for example, instead of uh, crying about Hamas um, flying their uh, rockets or um, as usual, Instead of that, instead of retaliating as if it's the, um, I mean, I, I don't want to sound, uh, I don't want it to sound like I am miniaturizing the effect of the attacks. It, it's severe and it's human lives that, that we, that they have, they are gambling with. Uh, but instead, instead of retaliating, um, Israel could, for example, um, or for the vaccinations um, to Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. Um, it's, um, we're through May, almost half mid-May, and the majority of Palestinians are, are not, like, including me, are not vaccinated yet. Then instead of inflaming the situation even further, um, just, like, act like the big guy and uh, um, offer help. It's, it's just, like, a basic... Uh, um, just like a basic human yeah. trait. Uh, so that's my idea on de-escalation. Um, also, um, everybody knows that, that the, those who are um, um, affected by what's going on in Jerusalem, um, everybody needs to pray. Everybody should, should have the, the right to pray when they uh, they want to. Uh, there should be a safe space for uh, Muslims in Jerusalem and the, the holiest site for Palestinians is Al-Aqsa Mosque. There, there should be a safe space and the, at the same time there should be a safe space for Jews to uh, worship and practice their rituals. Um, and and I, it, it's just difficult to imagine why is this um, why is this not happening? Why is why are the officials and and those in power not working towards making it happen this way? They they know what's going on. They know what the secret sauce is. They they know the history. They know that this entire conflict had started in the 1920s and the 30s uh, with major riots all over the land because of Al Aqsa Mosque. 
Um, we all know this, and and yet, um, so I'm I'm hoping, I'm hoping what's what's happening would teach us some lessons to learn from, to move forward. Thanks, Eunice. So I, I want us to maybe try to outline some practical, you know, next steps we could take. I think one of the ways to build uh, a movement, a movement that can actually change the reality on the ground is to be able to describe what that looks like. And as we've mentioned, we don't have leadership that is presenting us with a vision, a clear vision forward for what the future of this land looks like. That doesn't exist. It is now the it is now the role of activists to do just that. We need to be able to present what peace on this land looks like and how we achieve that. Okay. And this is actually something that I'll acknowledge myself as an activist. I don't have down well enough yet. I can't give you a A to Z process on how to achieve peace on this land. And perhaps nobody has the full A to Z, but I think we need to be able to, we, we need, we, we need to be able to present it better than it's currently being presented because the majority of the people on the land, I, I it's like 93% of Palestinians in a poll I saw a few years ago and 80 something percent of Israelis don't think peace will be attained in the next hundred years with such levels of despair. Uh, it's hard to rally a population um, for, for positive change. If they don't believe it can e- even happen, we need to be able to explain how this can happen. So, uh, Gershon, you've been you've been doing this for long before I was born. You know, I've been following you as an activist for many years now. Maybe you want to take the lead on this, and let's talk about practical next steps. What can we do? Sure. Um, I think that we're not at the point now, after so many years of failed negotiations, where we can talk about a common vision for peace. I think it's a, a little bit counterproductive at this point to do that. I think that the realities on the ground have made past possibilities almost impossible at this point. But what we need to talk about is changing the reality on the ground. Um, There's a very interesting Israeli initiative of some young people uh, who call themselves the initiative for reducing the conflict. they're not talking about making the occupation prettier. They're talking about convincing politicians to take steps that actually have the potential to reduce conflict and at the same time change the environment between the two sides that enable and encourage cooperation across the separation barrier, the apartheid wall, or whatever you want to call it. Um, One of the great tragedies of the Oslo peace process was the adoption of the mantra, us here and them there, with walls and fences between us. People talked about divorce. and People talked about separation. No peace that I know of in the world has ever been built by walls and fences that separate people. Peace is built by developing bridges of cooperation between people. So that's what we need to talk about. How do we reduce elements that create conflict that make people's lives difficult and at the same time develop cooperation across the conflict line. I'll give a few specific examples. Um, The easiest area to deal with is economics. 
Israel controls movement and access of Palestinians, which means that it's almost impossible for a Palestinian entrepreneur to, to compete in the global world of commerce. It, 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 just as a few simple examples, if you're an Israeli importer and you import, let's say, an X-ray machine from a factory in Germany, you will get your X-ray machine. It has approval from the Israeli Standards Institute. It will sit in the port of Ashdod for 24 to 48 hours, and it will be released. And if your container that you're shipping in is one of roughly every 20 that's checked for security, then you'll be billed about 700 shekels for the security check that was undertaken. If you're in one of the 19 containers that wasn't checked, you won't be billed 700 shekels for that container. The Palestinian, on the other hand, who orders the same X-ray machine from the same is a German factory, has to prove that it has a standard certificate, which takes time and money. It has to be done in Hebrew. They will get a bill for security check on every container, regardless of whether or not it was checked. And the transport of the goods has to go usually by back-to-back -back trucking. It has to go into a Palestinian truck if it's going into Area A, the Palestinian cities, etc. Certainly going out of Area A into Israel, it's a double shipping bill for trucking. You have to unload the goods at the checkpoint and put it into an Israeli licensed truck because Palestinian trucks aren't allowed on the roads. Now, there are simple solutions that can be devised for the U.S. government after 9-11 devised a system that they call trusted traders. There are millions of containers being shipped around the world every day, and not every container is checked and stopped. There are trusted traders who get a container locked with a GPS chip at the factory and are sent without being stopped and checked all the way to the port. So you have door-to-door -door rather than back-to-back. -back. This is a simple kind of solution. There are almost in every area of economic control by Israel of the Palestinian economy, there are things that we can find that can be easily done without a, a putting Israeli security at risk and enabling the Palestinians to have more economic chances for growth and development. But this is a, a very simple kind of example of reducing conflict. We can encourage Israeli and Palestinian entrepreneurs to work together. Young entrepreneurs, people in the world of high tech. There are a, a thousands of software engineers needed in Israel. Why should Israeli companies subcontract work out to India when right next door there are Palestinians who are graduating with the diplomas in engineering and IT and software development right next door who could work with Israeli companies for Israeli companies without having to travel to Israel to work online, to have decent salaries in a future. I can guarantee you that I know of no Palestinian who dreams that when they grow up, they want to wash cars in Israel. That is not a dream of a young person growing up in Palestine. People today in Palestine are studying mathematics and computers and engineering, and they want to have a decent future. And the Israeli economy right next door can actually facilitate a lot of that. Some people would call that normalization. And I want to get rid of this normalization context from thinking about those who cooperate with occupation and those who are working against occupation, but are enabling Palestinian growth and development and freedom. Uh, well put, and I, I'm happy you brought up the concept of normalization because that's what was coming to mind when you were when you were explaining this, that many 
many Palestinians hearing what you're saying naturally would say that's normalization. The, for, for those who are unfamiliar, the, uh, the concept of anti-normalization is that you do not normalize with your enemy. You don't normalize with your oppressor. It is not having interaction with Israelis until they end the occupation. That is, in short, what, what the anti-normalization movement is all about. That said, there is a pretty wide spectrum in what Palestinians do consider normalization. On one extreme, you will say um, you don't even speak to Israelis speaking. Being on a dialogue like we're doing right now is considered normalizing. That is on one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum would will outright just deny um, the concept of anti-normalization. They'll be like, no, we need to be friends. We, we need to just communicate, you know, integrate with one another. Um, it seems like there's there's what Gershon explained is, is somewhat of a healthy balance that we very much need to integrate economically. Uh, we need to work together uh, to, to the best of our ability. So I guess that this is really to be Sprostis and Eunice. H- how does this sound to you, this idea of um, Israelis and Palestinians starting to work together in high tech? Because I do know that there's a lot of there is a lot of resistance to ideas such as, such as these. I think that. Uh, oh, sorry. That, Wait, did you ask me or did you ask? Um, it's for both. This is for both of you. Okay, he, he can. Uh, he can do it. He can uh, take it. I think that, you know, for me, uh, the the question of is something normalization or isn't it, or if that's bad or not, that's um, to me, it's not not that pressing of a question because I care about kind of the results uh, so if speaking speaking with an israeli um you know there's no there's no result from just like speaking to somebody all you had was a conversation like maybe their mind changed or maybe your mind changed right um so on that front i don't see any issue with it i think that uh, economic integration it's important um but when we're talking about economics uh, you know it's a very very complicated thing um you could have a situation where there's, you know, maybe some exploitation just due to the fact of like um, the present situation. A lot of Palestinians are in, you know, you know, a lot of Palestinians, you know, they are trying to become doctors, engineers, but they're also, you know, in a very, um, very, very poor. And there's a lot of people dealing with a lot of, you know, unemployment. So, um, you know, definitely giving, giving people, uh, you know, the economic opportunity to do the things they want is a good thing. Um, but when we're, uh, you know, integrating the economy, we have to, you know, uh, be sure that no one's going to be, um, in a, in a bad position, right. Due to their own situation. I think that I'm going beyond economics. I think that what needs to be done is, you know, there are, there are Palestinians living in Israel, right. And right now they're protesting, right. They're protesting in all the, uh, all the Arab cities and all the you know mixed cities, and I think what needs to happen in Israel is that the the Jewish Israelis need to reach out to those people because I think they have the experience of fighting against um, their uh, their you know uh, issues with you know the state. They have the experience of just being Palestinian, and uh, they I, I feel like it's kind of 
it's important to do, you know, steps, right? Because I think, like, to me, it's strange that, like, in a country with, like, tw- where, like, 20% of the population is, you know, uh, how one minority, like, they're not already so uh, integrated or familiar with one another. And I think that in Israel, that familiarity needs to grow. Um, thank thank you. Um, hey, Yunus, did you want to jump in on the, the, the topic of normalization? Um, so I live in the, um, I live in Ramallah, so I, I can't very much, um, discuss that. Fair. Um, yeah, I don't have the, the privilege to do so. <laughs> and this, and, and, let me, let me step in if I can, um, sure. and, you know, I, I really suggested, and, and I've had conversations with Palestinian leaders on this and even people from the anti-normalization campaign, there needs to be a differentiation made between uh, supporting and cooperating with the occupation and what's called normalization. Um, Palestinians buy almost 100% of their electricity from Israel. Their water is controlled by Israel. Movement and access is controlled by Israel. Uh, 80% of the imports into Palestine are from Israel, foodstuffs, everything. Isn't that normalization? I mean, you go into a Palestinian grocery store and they sell Israeli products there. There was a boycott attempt to boycott Israeli products. It didn't really hold out because there aren't that many alternatives. The question is of whether or not the cooperation is supporting the occupation or opposing the occupation. I have fought against the occupation my whole entire life. And I don't understand how by not talk, talking with me or working with me helps to end the occupation. This is the bottom line question. Is what I'm doing helping to end the occupation or does it continue the occupation? This is the differentiation point that needs to be made. And when we have people on the Israeli side who are standing up and say, we are against the occupation, we are working to end the occupation, we want Palestine to be free, we want to build a shared society, we want to knock down the walls, then how can you as a Palestinian honestly say to yourself, I won't cooperate with those people? This is the big question that needs to be asked. Thanks, Gershon. I'm, so I'm going to build on that, and I'm going to try to navigate this sensitively as possible, but I am going to give a critique on Palestinian activism right now, that I, which I think is getting in the way. Um, for those who know me, know that I'm often critical of both sides, but often the optics of a Jew going live and criticizing Palestinians is generally not accepted by Palestinians. But I just want you to know that I, I do this to both sides. I do think that there's an issue of pride in Palestinian activism that often gets in the way of progress. We see this happening, I think, in two distinct ways. One, in the let in, in how anti-normalization is expressed, what Gershon just explained, the concept that we will not speak, we will not work, we will not even, we will not even protest against our conditions with Israelis. And often there's a very, very high precondition that is set in order for Palestinians to engage with Israelis. Um, it's, it's not uncommon. And this, if you ever do a session on Clubhouse, you'll see these, these uh, views are quite popular. They'll say, Until you denounce Zionism, there's nothing for us to talk about. The problem here is Palestinians view Zionism as akin to racism when Jews view it as just Jewish self-determination. 
but it's a pre, it's an unrealistic precon, precondition to build alliances. So that that idea, that precondition that's set creates a situation where where we are not building true alliances between Israelis and Palestinians. And the, the more I've been involved in this conflict, the more I've understood that we should try to look at the Palestinian struggle. Or struggle. Uh, we're having a siren. I think I could tell by the siren that it's a UBS process. I recognize the, the American. Oh, maybe not. Is that a, is that an air raid siren? Islamic Jihad said they're going to um, shoot rockets to Tel Aviv at nine o'clock, which is in the, in about interesting. 10 okay. Interesting. So we're going to, we're going to get an update on that. So I think we, we need to look at the Palestinian struggle as a civil rights movement, similar. And we have seen successful civil rights movement. Let's look at the American civil rights movement that involved black Americans working with white Americans, sharing with white Americans, their struggle. Amer white Americans were the ones with the power, the ones who voted, right? This is who, the, th these are who the alliances need to be built with. I don't think the American civil rights movement would have been nearly as effective had the approach of black activists in America been, we're going to speak to the UN, we're going to speak to the international community. I'm not saying that international pressure cannot help. We saw it help in South Africa, but building alliances from within a nation is what is greatly missed in much of Palestinian activism. And, and I, I, I view it as a real shame. There's a lot of alliances that are not being built because of this approach. Furthermore, the other distinct way in which it seems like pride is getting in the way of progress is there's an idea, the concept of making the occupation nicer, like Gershon brought up an idea of how to make the conditions easier. There's another great organization that I recently discovered called Reducing the Conflict uh, Initiative. That's what I was talking about. Okay, great. Yeah, so they're awesome. They, they propose, uh, maybe we'll drop a link in the in the chat. They, they propose like a six, six, seven different ways in which we could make the life for Palestinians uh, better. But many Palestinians, when they hear this, they view it as, no, we don't want the occupation to be better. We want it to be over. We want a unilateral withdrawal of the West Bank. We want to be free. The likelihood of that unilateral withdrawal happening is much, much lower than us taking practical steps to make the situation better. So it seems like that really very much is an instance of pride getting in the way of progress. Um, and and I, I say this with, with the deepest care for my Palestinian brothers and sisters, because we're working on building something here. And th it's these aspects um, of Palestinian activism that I feel are getting in the way. Uh, Beast process units, feel free to disagree, push back or, or build on that. I think that the pride issue, it's, I don't think that's what is getting in the way because when we're talking about, if you're speaking just, when you say Palestinian, you mean Palestinians in the West Bank, Gaza, et cetera, right? Or just all over. Because um, no, I'm talking about activists and also many in the diaspora as well. Some of the most like radical Palestinian activists I've met are actually Americans. And that's because yeah. they're very much influenced by, you know, woke social justice movements. Um, 
I think that sure, yeah. to, to ask somebody in, you know, the West Bank or Gaza, you know, why aren't you interacting with, you know, your Israeli, let's say, comrades? Um, then, you know, that's a, there's a simple answer to that. You know, there's there's just no interaction. Those populations are kept separate. Um, I think that in situations where the populations are of uh, Jews and Palestinians are, you know, able to connect with each other, that's the situation where they should work with one another. And it, you already see that working in America. You know, like a lot of people say that, um, you know, uh, uh, you said like the most uh, anti you know, Zionist people in America are the, you know, Palestinians. But I mean, I, I, from my experience, at least, you know, my entire uh, uh, political education in terms of this conflict has been led by, you know, anti, anti-Zionist Jews, right? Because, you know, like uh, folks like Noam Chomsky, Norman Finkelstein, um, very, very outspoken people. And, um, even like organizations like Jewish Voice for Peace, um, if not now, uh, a lot of organizations, you know, expressly anti-Zionist organizations um, who are, you know, completely willing to, I mean, it's gotten to the point where I, I, I remember, this was a tweet, but a former ambassador, I think of Israel said that, you know, we should pour our effort into talk, targeting the evangelical Christians now because the American um, Jews are just completely over it. You know, or uh, not completely, but like there's just there's more support in evangelical for com- communities than there is in Jewish communities for Israel. And I think that um, I, I really do appreciate that level of, uh, you know, solidarity from my uh, American uh, Jewish uh, I don't want to keep using the word comrade, but like comrades or colleagues or, you know, activists in arm. I think that um, that's a really beautiful thing. And, you know, I don't demand that people, you know, drop the word, you know, uh, Zionist when I'm speaking with them, because I understand it means like nothing. Right. If we want to discuss, you know, uh, how Netanyahu uses it or how uh, someone else uses it, that's a different discussion. But if, if it has, if it has like, so many different meanings that it can't even be like applied to anything anymore. It's a wasteful discussion. Um, you know, usually I, I agree. We, I, I do agree that you should have um, more discussions on the occupation, more discussions on settlement, more discussions on uh, attacks on Gaza. And these are the discussions that you, we should be having, not, you know, ideolo- ideological discussions of like th- theory, you know, um, we should be focusing on what's really happening to people. That's uh, definitely should be our concern. Um, so I, I don't know if pride necessarily is the case because we see in America where, where Jews and Palestinians can interact with each other freely, that they do work to each other towards the same goal. I hear It I seems hear like, yeah, it seems like there's something else in the way, right? Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, th- the way it's expressed to me, it it seems like pride, but it we 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 could we could find another term for it. That's just how it, I, I've always seen it, and it's not like I just view it. I, I don't view excess and pride as a problem just amongst Palestinian society. I mean, it's it's very much an issue in Israeli society and many societies across the world. I think 
humans in general should be less prideful. Um, I, I think it, it should. Yeah. I think the problem that we're facing is that we all lack strategy. There, there is no strategy today at the level of leadership or the level of grassroots or, or NGOs on how to move forward, on how to rebuild a peace process, on how to create a vision of how we will live together. And even I would suggest the anti-normalization movement lacks a coherent strategy and therefore they've achieved basically nothing over all these years that they're trying to do, which is what is essentially a nonviolent act against a policy or a state which engages in policies which should be condemned. But the biggest achievements of the BDS movement have been to get SodaStream to move out of the West Bank and into Israel. Um, and, and that's not going to bring down the occupation. Not only that, SodaStream moved to next to Rahat, the poorest town in Israel, which are Bedouins, and employs them at more than a, a minimum wages and continues to employ Palestinians from the West Bank, who they got permits for them to work and to live in Israel during the week time. So SodaStream actually became a good company. But that's been the effect of the lack of a coherent strategy of taking on the occupation through BDS. And I'm not condemning BDS. I think it, it could be an effective strategy. If it had a strategy, our leaders don't have a strategy other than keeping the status quo and keeping in their seats. The Palestinian Authority has no real strategy. The Hamas has no real strategy. And the government of Israel has no strategy. We're in a day-by-day -day kind of reality. From time to time, we have a round of violence that we have like we have now. It's going to end in the same way that all the other rounds of violence have ended. In another month, two months, half a year or a year from now, we'll have another round of violence because no one is developing any kind of coherent uh, strategy for tomorrow. It's, it's all about status quo and moving from day to day. Right. I think, I think that there, there is... There is a strategy that I prefer, that I very much like, and that is, uh, you know, popular approach. Let's think of like there are three arenas of uh, involved in this: Israel, Palestine, and let's say America, because they're so extremely involved in this. In uh, America, it kind of represents um, also the international community in this kind of diatribe that I'm going to go on. In the in the West Bank. And in, in Gaza, I think that what has been actually very, very successful is popular protest. So if you go Where? look at the, the March of Return, wait, in the March of Return 2018, that was, um, they, they protested. And I, I, um, there, there was some violence, but if you look at the you know, human rights reports, um, it was mostly peaceful. And that was, that was, I was pretty proud to be a Palestinian that day when you know, people protested for their rights. And from 2018 to 2020, 21 or maybe 2020, the uh, Democratic Party. Um, I, I don't. I don't know by how much it increased, but now at, it's at 52 or 53 percent of the Democratic Party's, you know, uh, voters support putting more pressure on Israel. And I, I, th I think that it, it, w it was since that was one of the most notable. It, and the, the increase happened from 2018 to 2020. So you know. Yeah, correlation is in causation, but I think it did correlate to that uh, protest, and I, that that's a real effect, right? In the in the West Bank, I mean, uh, the protests that you know unfortunately were you know uh, suppressed by the Israeli police, 
they've been super successful in bringing you know international attention to uh, Sheikh Jarrah. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't dream that like this one neighborhood in Jerusalem got so much in- attention over in the uh, you know international space. I think that these kinds of protests, especially the peaceful ones, when they happen, they need to be not only encouraged, but when they get brutally cracked down on, that has to be condemned, right? And I, I saw, at least in America, people condemning the brutal crackdown of these protests. There is, there is, and that's why I think it's, it's really important what Gershon said, that like, these politicians are useless. They're, they're self-interested. But the people who are actually being affected by this issue, you know, they're not going to screw themselves over. They know what to do. And um, those are the people we have to trust to, you know, do something about this conflict. So in America, you know, I, uh, you know, I'm going to be going to a protest uh, today um, in order to uh, pressure my my representatives to act better and, you know, stop uh, giving essentially, a, you know, a, a blank check. You know, uh, it, I don't want there to be a situation where we have a repeat of 2008, 2014 where um, there's just an unequivocal support of, like, of, you know, any operation in Gaza, no matter how many civilians die, that would be bad. Um, so, you know, these kinds of things, it's hard to see, see their effect uh, right away. Uh, but I think, I really do think they work. So I would encourage anybody here who, if, if, if you're an Israeli, reach out to a Palestinian in Israel and join them protesting in Haifa or uh, Umm al Um al-Fahim or any of these, you know, Arab cities, if you're a uh, Palestinian listening to this in the West Bank, um, you know, stay stay safe. And uh, I don't want to, you know, I live in the suburbs. I I, I don't like to tell people who are in a more dangerous situation than me. But if you are able to, um, I encourage you to, you know, continue to protest peacefully as you have done um, wonderfully so far. and at least know that I and a lot of people in America, in America, and even in, in Israel, support you. So, you know, you know, be be as resilient as possible is what I want to say. I don't know. I don't want to sound like I'm coaching them because you know, like I said, I am in a, I am, I am an American. You know, um, I'm in a different position, but yeah, def- definitely. And it, it's important that we 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 encourage people to take their 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 lives in their own hands because that's a complete refutation of Hamas's and Netanyahu's argument. Hamas's argument is we should be in power because you can rely on us because we're effective. Well, it's all those three things are false, right? What should happen is you should take your lives into your own hands and do what you can, right? Every Friday at four o'clock at Sheikh Jarrah, there's a demonstration that's been going on for about 10 years now. Every Friday, anyone who's in Jerusalem, eh, come. It's an Israeli-Palestinian demonstration. Will, will you be there this Friday, Gershon? Um, I don't know. It, it is actually a Jewish holiday this weekend, I believe. I don't know. Oh, yeah, maybe. Shavuot, right. I, right. I, I I, I, I'd, love, I'd love to meet you there at some point. Um, we'll, we'll coordinate that. I go, I go often. Awesome. So I've, uh, I've been demonstrating my whole life since I'm 12 years old, <laughs> I, and that's a lot of demonstrations. I must admit, uh, I'm I'm sorry to say this, but uh, I actually hate demonstrations. Um, I mm. go away from demonstrations feeling depressed. 
because a lot of people go home from these demonstrations patting themselves on the back, saying, look at what we did, we demonstrated. And in my reality, I see very little change as a result of demonstrations. There are very few demonstrations and I participated in probably thousands in my life. There are very few of them that I went away and said, wow, this had an impact. One of them was the 400,000 who demonstrated in, in Tel Aviv after Sabra and Shatila. I was at the demonstration at which Yitzhak Rabin was killed. That was a very powerful demonstration until its very bloody and sad end, which killed the peace process. But there have been a few demonstrations in my lifetime that I thought were effective. Most of them, I go away with a sense of, wow, if this is all we can do, we're in a really sad situation. So that, that's, that's what I feel. Um, I think we need to be a lot more effective than just going to a street corner that no one really cares about, holding signs that no one reads and doesn't really impact on anyone except giving ourselves the sense that we're doing something when we're really not doing that much. I, I would, I think it's important to stop people from patting themselves on the back and thinking, oh, this is enough, right? But I don't think we should dismiss, I mean, I don't protest necessarily because I, I'm certain I'm a, like, that I'm a hundred percent certain that my action will change anything. You know, I'm a, you know, I believe in God. I believe that, you know, things are going moving forward in a sort of destiny like way. Um, and that there's not much I can do, um, to stop it. You know, I have to uh, put my faith in, in what he's got planned for us. And, you know, I, 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 I feel like things, you know, even if I didn't believe in God, I, I, I feel that like things are very much self-determined. Uh, self-determinated already and the future is already determined but I think that um, I, I also see myself as a as a cog in this um, the machine of change and I'm willing to play my part even if the if I waste like a in a two hours um, on some no-name street corner you know it, it doesn't hurt my ego too much to know that I've wasted that time because I don't see it as a um, kind of uh, you know I'm not doing it because I think I personally will change things. I understand that like this thing, it could take years, it could take decades. Even. But I think to completely dismiss protests, I think it's because at some point it always does culminate, right? And you you want to be part of the, the buildup to that culmination. So like um, there, there is, I mean, there clearly has, at least in America, there clearly has been a change in public opinion. And um, whether that's because of how Israel has conducted itself in Gaza or whether that's because of how uh, activists, either or, I'd rather, I'd still want to be doing something. I'd still want to be uh, one of those activists out there, you know? I can't just like wait on Israel's like attacks on Gaza to make them, to build support for Palestinians, you know, uh, rights. You know, I, I, I feel like I, because otherwise there's nothing else I can do, you know? What, uh, what else can I do other than protest? Right. Uh, so someone you, asked me here on the chat if I protest when Jews are evicted, like in Gush Katif. Yeah, real quick. I just want to give a quick update. I'm not seeing it on the news yet, but I did just hear from friends in Tel Aviv that air raid sirens did go off. Right. Uh, this is a live update, not only Tel Aviv, but also Ranana. There's There's been uh, air raid sirens, which is a bit north of, uh, that'd be northeast of Tel Aviv. So th th this is... Yeah, let, um, let me comment on Gush Katif. Is that okay? Uh, yeah, yeah. and uh, what, what we're going to do now, I do want to take some audience questions. So uh, chat, start asking questions. Gershon, uh, yeah, you're free to answer. Just, just re read out the question so people know what it is. 
So the question was, if, if I protest when Jews are evicted like they were from Gush Katif, the Israeli settlements in Gaza, um, let, let's put this in perspective. Um, 8,000 Jews lived on 30% of Gaza, while a million and a half Palestinians lived on the other 70%. 20, uh, 30 years of Israeli settlement enterprise in Gaza resulted in 21 settlements and 8,000 Jews. That that's what it accounted to. When Ariel Sharon announced the disengagement from Gaza, he did it only because the Geneva Initiative, which supported the two-state solution, was gaining support internationally, including in the United States. The disengagement was aimed at refocusing the world attention on Israel leaving Gaza. And when they did that, when Israel announced that, I worked very hard to try and convince Mr. Sharon that he needs to engage in the uh, disengagement process together with Mahmoud Abbas, the president of Palestine, so as it would result as a diplomatic venture which would empower the moderates who were talking about peace. Um, at the urging of the director general of the prime minister's office, I even joined the Kadima party, which was against my morals, but I did it because he told me if I did that, then Sharon would talk to me. And when I talked to Sharon and urged him to uh, cooperate with Mahmoud Abbas, with Abu Mazen, in the disengagement process, he responded that he has no interest in doing that. And when Israel unilaterally left Gaza, the narrative of who kicked Israel out of Gaza was won by Hamas. This was a directed uh, enterprise of empowering Hamas to own the narrative that only Hamas kicked Israel out of Gaza, not Mahmoud Abbas and negotiations and the Oslo peace process. I did not protest when Jews had to leave their home in Gaza. I thought that they should have never lived there in the first place. I did protest and work very hard to try and create a diplomatic process from the disengagement so that it would benefit all of us in a peace process. Instead, it worked against all of us because the Israeli narrative today, and I'm sure whoever asks this question would just um, parrot the Israeli narrative, is, look, we gave them all of Gaza and they hit us with rockets. But that was exactly the intention, so that Gaza would fail, the Palestinians would fail in controlling Gaza, and we would have no pressure on us to remove ourselves from the West Bank. Thank you, uh, Gershon. Um, yeah, I, I want to say... Um, yeah, go ahead. I, I remember in 2003, very vividly, uh, I was listening to the radio, and um, Ariel Sharon back then, Prime Minister back then, or I think he was the Defense Minister. I'm not really sure. Um, he said, "We are if if we leave Gaza, we are going to prove to the rest of the world how, or the way with which Palestinians are going to behave." This was a year, almost a year and a half before the actual disengagement, um, and and the aim was very clear that to um, that. Exactly what what Gershon just said. Um, totally agree. It was just like a piece of from memory that that I actually heard that, and it's not uh, common that people know this. Um, and and actually, in the during the actual disengagement, um, it was deliberately not coordinated with the with the authorities in Gaza back then. Um, so it would lead probably to chaos and uh, to the desired outcome that that had uh, um, I'm, I'm definitely not saying that there has been a conspiracy to make Gaza um, 
um, into what it has become. But that was an element of the of what they were doing back then, and it's uh, it's unfortunate. Like to to prove a point, um, just to prove a point to show that they are the better people. Those people who were in the Israeli government back then, to prove a point, they how how many lives have been lost and uh, um, undisrupted. Thank you, Eunice. Um, we're going to do some more audience questions. I saw one about Zionism. I can't find it now. I don't remember who asked it. Somebody said, well, it doesn't matter what Jews think about Zionism. It matters how Zionism has manifested itself in practice. I think you're partially correct, whoever, whoever put that up. The, there, it's commonly said that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. One of the main reasons why I disagree with that statement, and this does put me in the minority opinion amongst Jews, is because it doesn't make sense for Palestinians to be anything other than anti-Zionist, given their history and experience with Zionism in practice. Okay, so you're, you're definitely right about that. When Palestinians are describing Zionism, they're describing what it has meant to them. But we do need to understand when a Jew identifies as Zionist, that's not that Jew saying, I support human rights abuses against Palestinians. They're simply saying, I support Jewish self-determination on our ancestral homeland. And there's many, many different variations of what that self-determination looks like. It's true that perhaps Zionists have not done a good enough job describing what Jewish self-determination looks like can look like without harming Palestinians. Um, we are stuck in a challenging quagmire that most forms of our self-determination seem to come at Palest the expense of Palestinian well-being to one, in one way or another. It's, that's true. But we do need to understand, if we want to have any form of dialogue with the other side, when a Jew says that they're Zionist, and this is the vast majority of Jews, that says absolutely nothing about how they feel about Palestinians or Palestinian human rights, simply how they feel about their own self-determination. So we need to understand, right, it's, it's a bit nuanced. I know we like simplicity, but we do need to understand we have very different understandings of what Zionism means. And if we want to be able to engage with one another, we need to understand this. Um, Anyone here can also feel free to build on that while I find some more questions in the chat. I think that, you know, I don't like thinking of uh, talking too much about, you know, th theoretical things or abstract ideas such as Zionism because Jewish self-determination, you know, that's an idea that in, in, as it exists in the abstract that I can get behind. Um, but as it has been applied in, you know, reality, that is um, something I, 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 you know, superpose, right? And it, it's also the, the uh, ideology, which I think brought, uh, you know, created events such as the Nakba or created the current system of occupation and settlement. What do I call it? You know, I mean, there is some clear kind of ideology that is driving this, you know, they're not just doing it, um, uh, for no reason, right? Or something is driving it. I, 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 just being in terms of just historical, I, I think that uh, the, if there is a term more accurate that I could use to describe it, then I would use it. But 
as far as I know, Zionism is the term that you know works the best, right? Um, when, when Netanyahu, um, you know, does any political action concerning the West Bank, I, I think he 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 would say, um, I do it in the name of Zionism, you know, and I I do think that that is kind of. Histor- historically accurate, going even all the way back to someone like Herzl, you know? There's a question here from May 26 about why I think that... It, it, yeah, is I, I want to say one last thing. I want to say one last thing on Zionism. One last... I, be, be, I agree with you, and I actually encourage Jews, and I know this is an uphill battle because there's a strong identity with the term Zionism, but I actually think we should get rid of that term because if all Zionism means is Jewish self-determination, why does that need a special term? I support Jewish self-determination. I support Palestinian self-determination. I support Kurdish self-determination. Those don't have distinct terms. Zionism is a term that creates immense confusion, has many different definitions. We get stuck in a theoretical conversation rather than an actual conversation about what's, what's going on. So I'm, I'm very cool getting rid of Zionism. I'm not a Zionist. I just support Jewish self-determination the same way I support uh, Palestinian self-determination. It seems like a way more clear-cut way to have a conversation. Uh, Gershon, all you? Yeah. Um, M26 asked why I think the Jews shouldn't live in, Palestine, in Gaza, why Jews can't live in Gaza. There's the question. Um, I, I didn't say that Jews can't live in Gaza, and I didn't say Jews can't live in the West Bank. I think that Jews can't live in a place where they are they have a superiority status where they have a special status under a special law where they're allowed to take people's land and build on it and they live under different rules and different laws. I think it's extremely important that when and if Palestine is free, that there be a Jewish minority within a Palestinian state. If that is going to be our future, then I think it's essential that we recognize that that for Jews, the land of Israel between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea is 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 the whole land of Israel. Just as for Palestinians, the whole land of Palestine from the river and the seas is all of Palestine. And we're we're both talking about all the land for all the people, and we need to find a a way in which we can all live in in any part of the land, but not with special superiority statuses that give them privileges that Everest don't have. That has to be done under a situation of equality. I, I really, really believe and hope that there will be, if there is an independent Palestinian state next to Israel, that that independent Palestinian state have a Jewish minority. I once had a very um, interesting meeting with my old friend Salam Fayyad when he was prime minister of, of Palestine. And Salam Fayyad said, we will encourage Jews to live in Palestine and we will tell the Israelis that we will grant the Jewish minority in Palestine exactly the same rights that the Palestinian minority has in Israel. And I thought that was a very clever answer because that would certainly be a way to encourage equality for Palestinian citizens of Israel if Israel knew that the Jews in Palestine would have the same rights as the Palestinians in Israel. Thanks, Gershon. Um, hold on, not that one. M- Mikey says it's and like saying... In a second, N26, I travel around Palestine every week in my own car by myself going to every Palestinian town and village and city and refugee camp and no harm has ever come to me. I speak Arabic and I come in peace and when you come in peace you find peace. If you go carrying a gun and you walk around Ramallah then you're putting a target on your back. If you go to Ramallah in peace you will find lots of peace there. 
Yeah, you know, I have a story to actually support that. I don't know if anyone here saw this, but around four or five years ago, I went to East Jerusalem and blindfolded myself with a sign saying, I'm a Jew and I love you. If you love me back, give me a hug. And I'll be honest, I was scared. I didn't know what would happen, but I actually got hugs in East Jerusalem um, because I, I showed an expression of love. And it's true that wouldn't have happened anywhere, everywhere on the land. Like I probably couldn't do that in um, Janine or Gaza, but there, there, you think so? For okay. sure. You, you know, you know, better. I mean, well, I'm going to once, once Corona dies down a bit more, I'm going to do that. I haven't been in Gaza since 2007, simply because we're not allowed to go by Israeli law. If I could go, I would go. I go to Janine. I go to Nablus. I go but you to don't Rutgers. think Hamas, I mean, right now Hamas is in, you, you don't think, knowing no, you're an Israeli, you would be in danger. Tomorrow I was allowed to go to Gaza. I would be going to Gaza and I would be a guest of Hamas, I assure you. Because I would okay, call well, the leader there who would pick me up at the border. Whenever that becomes a reality, I'm coming with you. Okay. <laughs> um, I, mean, I just don't understand about people. I mean, like, do you think that like every Palestinian, the Palestinians are, are like normal human beings, right? Do you think that they're just like waiting to murder, like they're like able to just like kill somebody in like on the spot at the second? Because I feel that sometimes I, I I get that impression from a lot no, of no, yeah, Israelis. Yeah, right, that's true. Yeah. There is this notion that it's like a very violent population, and that any one of them can just turn on you and kill you. You're you're right. That that is a common notion amongst Israeli society. Um, it, to me, it's clear that that's not most Palestinians, but there are certainly um, the more radicals in that society that I do think are certainly capable of, of hurting uh, Jews given the chance. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, yeah, I think what I mean to say is that like, there are, I think there are people who clearly have like a lot of, you know, really reprehensible views. Um, but like, it, it does, it seems like people are under the impression that like every Palestinian is this like trained killer, like capable of like, uh, any second doing any type of like murder. And I feel like that is so, it is so far from the truth. And, um, like, like just from like my experience of like talking to my cousins and uncles, I just, I couldn't imagine them like even injuring anybody, you know? Um, with their like pot bellies and all that stuff, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah, I hear that. Um, let's see. No, I don't think Palestinians have that same notion about Israelis. I think they have that notion of the IDF, but they don't have that notion of, uh, of all Israelis. I, yeah. I, yeah. I wonder how, you know, the fact that I am an ex-IDF soldier, that will, seems like, forever be something that there is some segment of Palestinian population that will have trouble seeing me uh, as just an Israeli. I'm an ex-IDF soldier. Wouldn't you agree with that to an extent? I think that um, it, it depends. I don't know. I, I mean, if you say, um, you know, I'm an ex-IDF soldier, um, but if you say, oh, I didn't do anything, I just like, you know, uh, worked at the thing and I did the checkpoint stuff, that's fine. I think, I, I, I don't know how people would necessarily react. Uh, I would have to, you know, ask them. Right. But uh, maybe uh, Eunice has something to say about this. Um, 
about can you repeat the the point to which you would like me to well it, the, the the question was if me being an ex-idf soldier if that's something that many palestinians will ever if it will be difficult for them to see past that you know when getting to know me they won't just see me as an individual as a jew as an israeli the fact that i was an idf soldier seems to carry some weight that's hard for many palestinians to get over and um and that weight that it carries is justified given Palestinians' experience with the IDF. Um, but do you think there's a way to work through that? So for me, it, it depends on what kind of Palestinian and how old they are and how, um, how much connected they have been to the rest of the country outside of Gaza and the West Bank. Um, older Palestinians um, in the 40s and 50s uh, would have would have had um, a closer um, interaction with um, average Israelis who are not in active duty um, in in Israel because hundreds of thousands of Palestinians have have been working in, in in Israel and and especially in the past the like. Prior to the to the separation wall, uh, that was that 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 was being built since two thousand and four. Um, so those Palestinians who would would speak better Hebrew um, have had more interactions with uh, average Israelis, and they realize that all Israelis, all Israelis have um, or had to do. Um, had to do military duty. Had to do. Had to be drafted mm -hmm. into the army at right. some point when they were eighteen or seventeen. Um, so, so Palestinians with experience would realize this now, and and they would be more inclined and less scared of an average Israeli for that particular reason. Uh, when you reveal to them that you used to be in the army, um, regardless of your experience. Um, their reaction uh, i mean of course given that you have you have uh, you have become probably more liberal and more accepting of the other and uh, had some sort of in their eyes some sort of a remorse uh, or or guilt for what you may have done during your um, your service military service um, so that factors in the way that they would um, react to you. But the problem is uh, the young generation, especially those who were born um, after or during when the, the separation wall was built and um, the interactions between Israelis and Palestinians were minimized to, the, to, to an extreme sense that the, the only Israelis you would meet are the Israelis are by, by the checkpoint or the, the settlers. And, uh, Majority of the uh, of Palestinian villagers' experiences with settlers are negative, unfortunately, um, and um, and and the only memory or the only perception that Palestinians have, the majority of Palestinians, especially the young generation, have of Israelis, is that they they, they would conflate you with with a settler or, or an IDF soldier uh, who is in active duty and who is not necessarily a nice person. Um, but the older generation and those who have access 
to uh, Israelis um, would have um, a better reaction to you in in general um, or to uh, to an Israeli? Yeah, I'm, I want to say two things. Um, there's a very good organization that I would point to that people should look up called Combatants for Peace. Yeah, Combatants for Peace was created right. by a group of former Israeli soldiers, most of them officers, most of them combat soldiers, and a group of Palestinians who were fighters in Fatah, another organization, who came together and said, violence and militarism is not the way, and we're laying down our weapons, and we're going to work together. And this very important organization works together. And they're all former Israeli soldiers and Palestinian combatants, and they've been working together for years, and they visit each other, and they carry on activities throughout the West Bank, and they're very well known, and you see them, and they're accepted. Like I said, when you go in peace, you find peace. And three weeks ago, I uh, took part in an activity that happens almost uh, several times a week for years now, over a decade, by an organization called Ta'ayush. And Ta'ayush means coexistence in, in Arabic. And Ta'ayush go down to uh, both the... the uh, is southern Hebron Hills, where the most violent settlers are there, and they go to protect uh, Palestinian shepherds and Palestinian uh, farmers to protect their land from the most violent settlers. Uh, and of course, the army comes and, and just watches the violence of the settlers against the Palestinians. That's why Ta'ayush Israelis go down there and try to protect the Palestinians and help them protect their land. And almost all the Israelis who go with Ta'ayush are former Israeli soldiers, including myself. So I, I don't think there's a problem when, when you're seeking peace, you find peace. The N26 guy says, what about a Haredi guy walking in the street of Ramallah? I just want to remind you, um, you're, you're obviously N26 Jewish. Every seven years we have a Shemitah year. It's a year when Jews don't plant, religious Jews don't plant the land and don't buy vegetables. If you go throughout the West Bank every seven years on Shemitah, you will see Haredi Jews all over the West Bank, buying fruits and vegetables from Palestinian farmers because they can buy fruits and vegetables. By the way, for the Palestinian farmers, it's their best years because the Haredi Jews pay the best prices for them. And in the whole Janine area, for example, which is one of the bread baskets of the West Bank, you will find every day Haredi farmers in Palestinian areas in Janine and in the villages of Janine buying those fruits and vegetables. They go in peace to buy fruits and vegetables, and they go home with their fruits and vegetables, very happy. And uh, and I assure you that even if some Haredi wants to come with me to Ramallah, um, they are more than welcome to come with me, and we can walk around the streets of Ramallah. We will do that with some Palestinian friends, because when you're a guest in a town, you act like a guest, and you don't act like the balabai, like you're the owner of the place. I'm looking forward to going to Ramallah soon enough. Yunus, I'll come, I'll, I'll come visit you if you're willing to host. I think something that I, I've noticed in this, so far in this conversation is where Yunus said the older generation who interacted with the, the um, Israelis more are less, um, uh, you know, we would say uh, uh, angry or bigoted. And the, the newer generation who had less interaction is... Um, you know, more so do that, you know, I, th I think that really proves is that when you keep populations separate from one another, that they obviously would become more hateful of another uh, since they don't know each other that well. 
And therefore, it's important if you want, if your goal is to get rid of the hate and therefore the danger, then you have to get these populations to interact with each other more. And it's always frustrating when you see people go, well, what about how it is now? Um, and point to that, uh, that level of hate as an excuse of not you know, getting populations to know each other. Well, if you keep going, if you keep doing that, it's just going to build up the hate. That's not a solution to anything. That's, um, you're, in, in fact, you're just being a reactionary. Um, if the goal is, I want the hate to go away, the policy is obvious, right? You have to get the population to interact with each other. And it takes that, um, I guess, that level of maturity to understand that this is just something you have to do. Right. So we're getting on an hour and a half now. If anybody, if any of you need to sign off, um, you're free to go, but you're welcome to stay. I think we'll probably do another 30 minutes or so, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. If does anybody I'm, I'm need gonna, to go? I'm going to head off if it's okay with everyone. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. Sure. You want to leave any final thoughts? Um, I just think these conversations are important. I encourage everyone who's listening to knock on the door of someone on Facebook that you don't know and say, hey, I'd like to talk to you. Tell me your story. I've never been turned down by someone when I said I want to talk to them and listen to them. Not to argue, to listen, to ask questions and to listen. And that's how you open up a door to understanding. And it's very easy to do, even though it's much more difficult for young people these days to cross the borders and meet with each other than it was when I was young. Uh, but uh, we have the uh, social media, the Facebook and the Twitter and, and other social media, and it doesn't have to be used for hate. It can actually be used for opening up doors and opening up friendships. And I encourage everyone to do that. Amen, Gershon. Very much agreed. Thank you so much for joining us. But, and whoever wants Gershon can be found at Gershon Baskin on Facebook, uh, Twitter. He's very active. Feel free to reach out to him. Um, also, GershonBaskin.com is your website? Yeah, or .org. And GershonBaskin at Gmail is my email. Awesome. Thank you, Gershon. Um, so, uh, yeah. Um, it's time for me to head off as well. You got to head off. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Eunice. Stay safe. Stay thanks, strong. Uh, Any final thoughts you want to share? Um, I I agree with the positive sentiments um, of both your guests. Um, and I think it's very honorable um, that they would have the it, – it takes courage. Um, as I've said in the previous uh, – debate uh, that I've had on your channel, that it takes courage to reconcile our differences and um, come together. And and it's even more difficult to uh, want to treat the other with equality um, and to kind of reach a place where you would treat them um, as family. It takes, it takes some work, but it's it's definitely worth it. It's definitely worth uh, what we invest in it. So, Thank yeah. you, Eunice. It was great having you on, um, and we'll be in touch soon. Thanks, Adar. I appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good Talk night. Soon. Beast, are you uh, sticking around for a little while longer? Uh, maybe. Yeah, it depends. But I, I'll give like a, a final 
thoughts if we're going from this section to whatever next session happens. Um, if I have any message for the people watching, it is definitely go protest, right? There are tons of protests um, right now that are uh, giving solidarity to, you know, Palestinians and towards making sure the conflict doesn't escalate. Um, definitely try to find them. Uh, if you live in Israel, there's, you know, people protesting in you know, all the uh, Arab cities, try to join them there. Uh, you know, if you feel comfortable, I don't, I don't want people to do anything they don't feel comfortable with. Uh, if you're Palestinian, also try to protest if you feel comfortable. And if you're an American, then definitely protest because there's no excuse. Okay, no, there's no reason you, you shouldn't protest as an American. Um, if you want to find me, uh, I have a YouTube channel called uh, Beast Process, um, and where I make videos. And that's uh, I think that's it. That's my message. Awesome. Thank you, Beast Process. It's been great having you. Uh, I guess we'll do some audience. We'll do some audience questions, some more audience questions. Whoever's new to this channel and you like what you see, subscribe. But we do weekly live streams between Israelis and Palestinians, uh, as well as touching on other topics here and there. Our goal at Surcha is really to connect between people in conflict. That's what we're all about. Like and subscribe. I guess I'll take this opportunity to shout out our Patreon visionary members. Patreon visionary members are those who uh, support our show on a monthly basis. We have Tri Trivium Energy PTYLTD. We have SOG Cannabis. We have Max Marine. We have Gavin, Geffen Posner. We have Adam Albilia. And we have our champion Patreon, Rajya. If you want to support the show, um, you can find a link to our Patreon and other forms of donations in the description. We also are always looking for volunteers and we're very much a community-run project. If anybody uh, wants to help in one way or another, there's many things to do, and including contributing with your own form of content. A lot of the content on the channel today is content that community members themselves have come up with. Um, let's uh, let's take some questions. So Nicholas asks, as a young American Jew, I'm watching my politically active friends on Instagram come out against Israel. How do we feel about this as shaping American Gentile perception? Well. I would say that it's clear that the younger generation is definitely more pro-Palestine and more anti-Israel than the generation before it. I think um, most uh, American Jewish activists defending Israel, their efforts are quite futile, partially because they're outnumbered, partially because their approach is just entirely ineffective. Most pro-Israel activists and advocates, they will only defend Israel. They will never criticize Israel. When all you do is defend Israel, you have zero, and you refuse to criticize, you have zero legitimacy in your defense. You build up a community on Twitter and Facebook and whatever social media platform you're using of people within your own echo chamber. You're writing generally the messages, uh, your pro-Israel messages are directed towards those who already agree with you. It's great. It might give you meaning. Uh, it's great to get positive reinforcement, but it's entirely ineffective at changing minds. If you want to change minds, you need to be you need credibility as an activist and you need to show that you can honestly criticize Israel. And if you're not going to do that, well, then people aren't going to listen to you. Furthermore, I think the best defense for Israel is to not is for Israel to solve the conflict. And again, then say 
people would say it takes two to tango. Put that aside. There is a lot Israel can do. Um, we, we've spoken about it the past few hours of more things Israel can do. We spoke of some things what Palestinians can do. But if, if Jews around the world, if Israelis care about our PR issue, well, then let's solve the conflict. All this Hasbara, all this trying to excuse what we're doing, it's, it's by and large ineffective. Feel free to chime in at any time after I uh, once responding. Uh, let's see. Mm-hmm. I saw somebody ask. This was a while ago. I don't know if you're still here. I don't remember who asked it, but they asked me, if, we, if peace is achieved, what will I then do instead of being an activist? So first of all, I don't, I don't do this full time. I, I only make a few hundred dollars a month. Uh, doing doing this. This is not about money. It's it's a passion. It's because I truly believe in it. Uh, it's more so a way of life. That said, if I could ever do it full time, I would. If we could grow this YouTube channel and, and monetize and get sponsors in a way that I could live off it, I'll do it full time. Um, not because it's for the money, but because being able to do this full time will yield much better results. And I would love to I would love to do that. I'd love to dedicate my life to, to this. Um, what I do for, for money, I actually work in high tech. I work in, in a blockchain company. I've been involved in the blockchain space for the past three years. Those unfamiliar with blockchain, it's uh, the technology on which cryptocurrency exists. Pretty uh, cutting edge, transformative uh, technology. If the conflict is solved, I will still be an activist because there's many other causes to fight for. There... I do not think I will live to see the day where there is no more causes to fight for. If that happens, great. I'll spend the rest of my days traveling the world, meeting people, having good conversations, experiencing new things. Um, maybe some extreme sports, skydiving. Like there's, there's so many ways to get meaning in this world. Uh, but I, realistically, I know that there will always be something to fight for. Important to mention, though, that Activism has the ability to take a large emotional toll on your well-being. You carry the weight of your cause on your shoulders. That weighs us down and harms us. I refrain from doing that because for me, I want, you know, activism is a way of life. I don't want it to take a toll on me. It's true that um, in a sense, coming from a place of privilege, because I'm generally not fighting for my rights it's generally working, seeing injustices around me and, and doing my part to uh, help. So it's easier for me to say, do not carry the weight of your cause on your shoulders. But I think everybody, from an extent, can try to not let the anger that they feel at the injustices of the world sit within them for too long. They, they can feel the anger, let it drive them, but let it pass. Let what drives us be love for one another, love for humanity. If you're driven by love rather than anger, well, then it's gonna you're going to be healthier doing this long term. Also, don't tie your activism to the end result because we don't know if we will ever see the, the positive outcome we achieve. Every, every positive act we do has a po- positive ripple, which continues to spread long beyond our time here on Earth. No, keep that in mind because you might not see the actual effect. So make activism about the journey, not the destination. Um, let's see if there's anything else. 
we have a breaking. A woman has died after rocket strike in Rishon Tzion, south of Tel Aviv. That is very sad. We have a question for Mariam Ahmed. Why does most Israelis support bombing Gaza despite the civilians and kids dying? We touched on this today and yesterday. Most, pe- most people's inclination, it's a deep innate inclination. Re- retaliation and vengeance is, is, seems hardwired into our DNA. To not respond to rocket fire, most Israelis view as a severe like a sign of weakness. How can we not respond, they say. If uh, a child dies from a response, most Israelis don't view that as our fault. They view it as Hamas's fault from shooting rockets from densely populated areas. And it's, and it's true that the blame definitely goes both ways. Israel doesn't need to retaliate. And had they not retaliated, those lives would not be lost. But Hamas shoots these rockets from populated areas knowing that there's going to be retaliation. Hamas does not do much to protect their citizens. They have not built bomb shelters in Gaza for their people. They've built tunnels. So the blame certainly goes both both ways. I personally think our retaliation is, is wrong. It's counterproductive. We should stop it. But that's kind of where it comes from. If you want to see a, a longer breakdown of my thoughts on retaliation, check out yesterday's live stream. I, I opened with, with that idea. Um, Beast, I see you got to go. Um, yeah. All uh, good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, th- thanks for joining, brother. Uh, I'd love to have you on again soon. Talk soon. Okay, bye. Adar, how can one convince Israelis that the Israeli government are violating human rights on a daily basis and violating the Geneva Conventions? Facts apparently don't do the job. This is a tricky one. Thanks for the question, uh, Chris. Generally speaking, Israelis don't give much regard to international law. They don't think that the UN is their friend and they have a deep mistrust from the international community. Some of its justification roots back to the Holocaust where half of our population was killed and no one did anything about it. And let's be real. We know that the the international community is not great at intervening uh, when people are being killed, uh, murdered. So Israel doesn't trust the international community. They by and large disregard international law. They value domestic law much higher. So if the Israeli government says something is okay, and the international law says something isn't okay, they're going to listen to the Israeli government. Now, I did give an explanation that roots back to mistrust connected to the Holocaust, but it's quite possible that that isn't even the the main factor here. I'm not sure there's many countries who would value international law over the law of their own nation. It'd be interesting to see, but generally speaking, we have more loyalty to our country than to the UN, right? That seems to be consistent across the globe. Um, Human rights abuses. How do Israelis deny human rights abuses? Many Israelis are not aware of to the extent of the human rights abuses. We, a lot of it is a willful ignorance. We don't want to know what's going on. We don't look into it. 
it's also not spread by our media. Our media doesn't talk about it. Uh, the abuses that are known, for example, you know, checkpoints, home searches, home demolitions, these are all things that Israelis know exist. They view it as a necessary, a necessary trade-off for security. Uh, it's not it's not that it necessarily makes Israelis happy that these things are happening, but they they view it as as a necessary security measure. I disagree with that notion. There's a lot that we do that we don't have to do, and we would still be it would impose an existential threat. Generally speaking, Israelis are very loyal to their military. We're very critical of, of our government on domestic, on much of domestic policy. But when it comes to uh, military policy, it seems like we're very much, there's a very much blind support across the board. So, and critique of the military is often seen as some form of a, a traitorous um, rhetoric, which is, is very much a problem in Israeli society that, that we need to work to change. Organizations like BDS, not BDS, um, BTS, Breaking the Silence, are considered anti-Semitic and Israelis hate them. I think Breaking the Silence is essentially talking about the ugliest aspects of our military occupation of, of the West Bank. It's possible that Breaking the Silence is, t- is taking making a strategic mistake because a lot of their advocacy they do in English to the international community, this to Israelis is perceived as Breaking the Silence is trying to demonize Israel's image. Um, If Breaking the Silence would change their approach and work primarily within Israel in Hebrew, it's possible that more Israelis would be aware of the ugly side of of the occupation. Um, Pablo A., so you live in a cult. Um, no, I wouldn't say. I mean, I live in a country. There's there's certain views. I, what, what country do you live in? I could I could draw you a parallel in your country. That's that's very similar. Strong national mindset, blind support for government, blind support for police and other institutions, uh, denial of of historic transgressions. These are things that are pretty consistent across the board in, in nations across the board. That doesn't that doesn't mean you're in a cult unless you just want to use definitions. However, seem to fit your you know your worldview, but. If you want people to take you seriously, bro, you gotta you gotta try to use uh, you know agreed upon definitions. Yeah, Jordan goes. We live in a culture. I would say that's a, that's a better way to look at it. There's a there's a cultural issue here. Ophir says Pablo has been spouting anti-Semitic cliches for an hour. I have not seen them, but I hear you. Pablo, you're saying you live in Syria. I can find. I can, I'm sure we can find many, many aspects of uh, of Syrian culture that may be perceived as as cult like. I'm not here to shit on any other nation. I'm not going to get into it. But you know, often those who are most critical of Israel do very little introspection on themselves or or their own nations. This is one of the reasons why Israelis often don't take outside activists very seriously. They view them as by and large hypocritical because. There's uh, an extreme focus on, on Israel and very little. And the same people who are going to criticize Israel, ferociously criticize Israel, are very 
often going to just justify what their own government does. This doesn't mean that foreign activists don't don't have a right to speak against Israel. They certainly do. But this is often how it's perceived in uh, in Israel, and there's good reason for it. P-Ball, you want to join the chat? Sure, let's get you on here, P-Ball. I just sent you to Discord. We got people coming on. If anyone else wants to come on, let me know. We'll send a link. Um, Bistan is coming to uh, Pablo's defense. He says he's not spouting anti-Semitic cliches. He's very, he is angry, but nothing to do with Jewish hate. So the verdict is still out. I haven't seen anything with my own two eyes yet, but um, we'll see. Adar, many thanks for your sincere answer. The Israeli military court conviction rate is above 99%. How can somebody justify that? Uh, thanks for another question, Chris. I actually did not know it was that high. Um, that seems awfully problematic if that's the case. We once did have a presentation by somebody who, who works, does some advocacy of Palestinian that does some advocacy in that space. Maybe if you have a source share that, that that's very interesting. But no, there, there's no way to justify 90, 99% uh, conviction rate. Pablo says, honestly, I respect what you're doing, but I still feel you don't understand the whole concept of hate to Zionism. Uh, first of all, thank you. Secondly, I'm, I'm open to learning, right? It's possible you could share with me a perspective I haven't heard yet. But I'm fairly certain that I have a, a pretty, pretty good understanding of, of why people dislike Zionism. Um, it makes it, it makes perfect sense to me why why many people hate Zionism. There's no, you know, there's no question there. Um Mona is saying, is inviting Chris to join Z Discord where Mona will send you links on that. Mo yeah, Mona has done a lot of work when it comes to uh, child rights in the West Bank, uh, and she has some data to back it up. I'm going to drop a Discord link in the, in the chat. Uh, P-Ball, what's up? You're on mute, so just unmute yourself. People, I'm not hearing you. Wait, ho hold on real quick. I just, we have a Harland is giving an explanation. He says that Rudy Rashman, who is a prominent Israeli activist, he's been on the show many times, that Rudy says the only cases brought to the military court are ones with a high chance of conviction because if the state loses, they have to pay the, de the defense. That's interesting. Um, Right. So here we're talking about something I do not have all the information on. This would actually be a very interesting debate to host uh, on just this topic. If people have more sources to back up these claims, please send them so so I can make a more have a more informed understanding of this topic. Um, DJ Kadja. Hi, Dar. What do you recommend to the people who want to sympathize with the Palestinians but see rockets fired at Tel Aviv? and draw the line there, i.e. violence bring violence. So thank you, DJ Kaji. You know, you bring up a good question that I think many people struggle with. 
it's often hard to empathize with people who we view as our enemy or people who we think want to harm us. We need to understand, and this is really what helped get me into activism. We are all products of our environment, okay? If I was born in Gaza, I would probably think Israel, most likely think Israel is the enemy, right? And hate Israelis. If you're born in Israel, then you likely view it in reverse. So it is our conditions that make us who we are. It's not some conscious choice to be bad or evil. It's life that turns us into that. But not only that, we should not take the actions of our governments and attribute that to the entirety of the population. So Hamas shooting rockets is Hamas shooting rockets. That says nothing to the Gazan mother who is crying tonight because she lost her child today in an airstrike, right? So try to keep that in mind. We're all products of our environment and the actions of a few don't determine the views of the whole. Um, People, you ready? You're on mute. What's up, people? People, I'm not hearing you. You gotta, you gotta. <laughs> you know, people. I feel like when you come on, half of half of our interaction is me trying to get you to speak, and then eventually you do it. But like, we just got to get you up here, unmute, bang out a monologue, and and then mute yourself again. Like that. That's what we got to work our way up for. So we'll get there. Someone says, I, I can't believe you're the blindfolded hug guy. That's awesome. Yeah, a lot of people don't know that was me. That was uh, one, that was in my early days of activism, one of the first major things I did. I mean, it went me- mega viral. Uh, I'll probably do that again at some point, maybe in Ramallah, just waiting for COVID to, uh, you know, relax a little bit because uh, I don't think people are hugging much these days. Well, in Israel, we are. We're all vaccinated, but I, I don't know what it's like in uh in Palestine. Uh, I, I think P-Ball might be pulling a shtick. <laughs> I don't know. I, he, he normally uh, he normally has something to say. Lake is acting asking, what is the blindfolded hug? Uh, like six years ago, we did a social experiment. We had an, Israel, an Israeli standing in uh, Tel Aviv blindfolded with a sign, I'm a Jew and I love you. If you love me back, give me a hug. And he got a bunch of hugs. I then went to East Jerusalem with the sign, I'm a Jew and I love you. If you love me back, give me a hug. I got a bunch of hugs. And um, it went mega viral. It got over 10 million views on different uploads on Facebook. I was interviewed on the news. Yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. It, it really touched a lot of people. We, 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 need more, we need more inspiring acts like that because that has the ability to change someone's uh, notion on the conflict. Um, Jeff Hirsch, Hirsch is asking any recent statements from Abbas. I, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, believe it or not, I really don't follow the news that much. I'm not, I don't stay so up to date. I mean, if anybody knows what, what Abbas said, let us know. 
he just called off the elections. That was a few weeks ago, yeah. But we, we knew that was going to happen. The, the elections have been called off a few times. Uh, have been called off a few times. Elections is a tricky one, right? Because the Palestinians deserve, a, you know, democratic elections, right? They, they deserve the right to choose their own leader. And yet it seems like had there have there been elections that Hamas would likely win. And that's a tricky one. Like what, what would happen then? I'm, I'm not sure. Zach is asking what I think will happen to Aza, Gaza. Um, I think we're in for another few days of um, back and forth and uh, many targets will be hit in Gaza. Uh, civilian, some militants will be killed, but so will civilians. We'll blow up some of their infrastructure. Long term, it's not going to weaken Hamas. It's going to increase their support amongst Gazans and it's going to increase their support amongst the international community. Hamas normally wins these exchanges just by virtue of their popularity after the fact. So our approach is completely misguided. Um, let's see. Is there any updates in Jerusalem, Mariam asked? So it's hard for me to follow the updates as well as do these. So maybe we'll, we'll crowdsource it. And if the audience wants to give live updates in the in the chat, I'll read them off. That would be a way to inform everybody what's going on. So chat, let us let me know what's going on. Um, Jordan, should Biden say something about Sheikh Jarrah? Uh, yeah, sure, sure. Why not? Just... Um, needs to make sure he has a good teleprompter speech uh, to make sure it's, it's coherent and it should be something that, that focuses on, on de-escalation, which I, I imagine it probably would be if he says something. Al Ram says, do P, do you think people usually forget these turbulent times during days of relevant peace? Yes. And very quickly. Well, I could I could speak for the Israeli side. Palestinians are reminded of the conflict on a day to day basis with their interaction with the, the IDF. But, yeah, we go back to regular life very, very quickly. I think it's partially human nature, right? Humans just adapt very quickly. But I think we're just used to it. We know every few years there's going to be conflict, um, whether it's some kind of a terror attack, rocket fire, um, and then it will end. You know, it's it's a shitty few weeks, sometimes a month plus, and then life goes back to normal within days. It's normally like the, the first day of, you know, the end of that um, escalation. Everyone celebrates and goes out to parties, and then it's as if nothing ever happened. That's that's generally how it works. Oh, that's riveting. Mona writes, no, that's not what it is. Mona wrote. Two parents lost their five children in an Israeli airstrike last night. Yeah, you see, like, that's an uh, unimaginable um, situation. Like, how, how do you even deal with something like that? And for what? Because we need to retaliate when it's clear that it just strengthens Hamas. I know, I know people hear this, they're like, He's naive. He's radical. He's saying we shouldn't retaliate. There's other forms of retaliation. We don't need to bomb a very densely populated uh, 
uh, city. Honestly, the, 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 we need to build a world where this form of retaliation is what's considered entirely radical and, and not, not the opposite. Basin asks, Bisan asks, Adar, may I try to get guests to come on Sulha for a debate dialogue? Yes, that's a huge yes. One of the biggest challenges of what we're doing is, is doing good booking and matchmaking. We have a few community volunteers helping. But yeah, bringing on interesting guests to dialogue and debate is very much needed. Uh, the more the merrier. It really helps us hear more voices, get our get our uh, our mission out there. And we're even doing something else. Anybody who closes a booking from start to finish, we give them 25% of the revenue of that episode. So we even have a revenue sharing model with our community members. Um, don't, don't think 25% is going to get you rich. Our channel is still... Uh, you know, fairly small, but it, it, it's our way to pay back people who are who are helping us. So, yeah, if you want to talk more about it, you can reach out to me on any of my social media. You can find that in the description. Um, Raja asks, have any rockets gone off near you, Adar? So, no, I live in the Galilee now, very much north. I live a 20-minute drive from Lebanon. I am one of the safest places from Hamas rockets. If we get in some kind of an engagement with Hezbollah or perhaps Syria, then definitely I will be, this area will be targeted. And Hezbollah has rocket capabilities that far surpass what Hamas can do. I, I hope that day never comes, but uh, the, the north is is pretty pretty much the safest place to be right now, unless we're we have an engagement with Hezbollah. So Bisan says, "You got it, not for the money." I love the dialogue, and I appreciate that. No, no one no one is doing this for the money. I realize nobody's volunteering for the money. I'm not here for the money. That's not what this is about. That's very clear. It's still we 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 do like to. Uh, share the wealth and show our appreciation to those who are helping us. Um, Leica asks, just Israel-Palestine debates or more ones like the woke one you did? Yes, yeah, so we, we like to touch on other topics. We recently launched a show called What the Woke. It's trying to have dialogue sessions between uh, people in the social justice split space, the woke, anti-woke divide in, in the United States. I'd love to do more of that. The reason we haven't done another one yet is really booking capacity. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much overwhelmed with different tasks from my day job and from what I'm doing here that I haven't really had time to sit down and, and book something for what the woke round to. But yeah, if you have any way to help with that, that that'd be awesome. Mordecai says the North isn't safer than where you are. Uh, where are you? Zach says, invite a Hamas member. If a Hamas member would be willing to come on the show, then we would we would host them with open arms. Hamas members, if you're watching this, uh, hit me up. We'll, we'll bring you on. Let's, let's get a little debate going. Cool. Um, I don't see many more questions. I guess we could wrap it up. 
Oh, I see this. Alram is asking, what do you think of Sarvanim? Sarvanim? What, what is that? I'm actually not sure what that is. No, no matter how do you deal with rocket launchers set inside civilian buildings? I, I don't think we should be retaliating the way the way we're retaliating. I know I know it sounds wild to not strike back when we get shot at. I broke this down yesterday. I'll do it briefly. I'll do another brief breakdown. When we respond, we don't know what would happen if we don't respond. But here's what we do know happens when we do respond. First of all, civilians die. Okay. As was just mentioned, two parents lost their five children yesterday in Gaza. We know civilians die. We know that our attacks cause more attacks from from, uh, Gaza. Right. So today there was a clear escalation uh, from Gaza. Clear escalation. They shot rockets on Tel Aviv. Do you think had we not responded yesterday that would have happened? I don't think it would have. I, I think had we not responded... Have, have we look at other methods of response, there wouldn't have been that clear escalation. And the people, the civilians that died in Israel today, very well may have been alive had we had a different approach. Not only that, our attacks, when we attack Gaza, Hamas increases in popularity, both in Gaza and both internationally. They also get a shit ton of money from the international community. So it's not clear that it's an effective deterrent. It doesn't stop their ability to shoot rockets on us, but it harms lives. It further escalates and it makes them more popular. It's clear that this is not an effective approach. And people say, but we can't do nothing. Well, nothing in this instance is obviously better than something, but I don't think that we don't need to do nothing. I think that there are things we can do that aren't clearly so net negative the way our current retaliations are. Um, Let's see. Ophir says it's effective. Israel still exists. I mean, but you're saying if we had not, responded to rocket fire that Israel would cease to exist. I mean, that's just, that, that's not grounded in, in reality, really. You know, it's, it's just not. What's the worst take you've heard during this time so far? Uh, bad takes on social media. There's so many of them. Just today I saw, I think she was a Palestinian girl, definitely Muslim. She's a hijabi girl. She, she posted, uh, <laughs> She posted a story on Instagram saying the only reason why Jews want Palestine is because oil. Palestine is the most oil rich nation in the world. There's no oil here. That's like a that's such a ridiculous statement. Um, it's even cringy to think about. And and that that girl is literally harming Palestinian activism because it, it gets people to view Palestinian activism as, as a joke. Like that, that's just such a, a stupid take, not grounded in reality. It's a, it's a blatant lie, blatant misinformation. On the Israeli side, I've seen, I, I saw some, some people, they, yesterday, uh, Palestinians were holding up their, um, their, uh, 
their their flashlights on their phone and somebody took a picture of them holding their flashlights and putting it next to uh to a picture of the people holding up the torches in was it Char- charlottesville uh was it north south carolina wherever the white supremacist march was uh, a few years back and and showing a parallel between those two i mean that's also cringy as hell that's not you're, you're not helping anybody not 90 90 plus percent of activist posts are not speaking they're not convincing anybody they are speaking to people who already agree with you in order to get positive reinforcement from from your in-group. They're not about changing minds. Most activists, most social media activists are complete garbage, like straight up. I I, I try to not use harsh language, but yeah, I'll put it out there. 90% of online activists are complete garbage in terms of the effectiveness of their approach. Um, And if you're an online activist and you disagree, come debate me on this. if anybody has other cringe takes, feel free to uh, share them here. We could do a nice little cringe take. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Rashida Talib's take. Can, oh, can somebody – hold on. Let me find that tweet. I'm going to do a screen share. Or can someone send that to me? Did she delete it? Uh, let's see. She might have deleted it. It was, it was hilarious. Um That's actually a funny idea. We can do another live stream sometime this week uh, that is just debunking shitty takes. And there's so many of them. I would just need, I I would want you guys, the community to help me find these bad takes so we can. uh... Oh yeah, here it is. Hold on. Yeah. So I was saying I I would want help with the takes in order we could find them and we could debunk them together. Debunk slash laugh at them together. Share, share screen. Okay, check this out. Can you see my screen? Cool. She goes, I saw, I was seven years old when I first prayed at the Laksa with my city. I don't know what a city is, but okay. It's a sacred site for Muslims. This is equivalent to attacking the Church of the Holy Sepulcher for Christians or Temple Mount for Jews. Israel attacks it during Ramadan. Where's the outrage? So Al-Aqsa Mosque is on Temple Mount. That's that's like the whole irony of it. And it seems like her framing of this, you could do some mental gymnastics and I guess justify what she's saying. She's saying, yeah, Temple Mount's holy, Al-Aqsa's on it. That's, those two things aren't contradictory. You know what, we could, it's possible to give her the benefit of the doubt on it, but I'm pretty sure she had, she didn't know that Temple Mount, Al-Aqsa is sitting on Temple Mount. And this is the the core of a lot of uh, controversy between the more religious segments of, of our societies. Uh, Nora, Nora is saying uh, city means grandmother. Oh, thank you. Is that, that's an Arabic city? Grandmother. Interesting. So in Hebrew, it's Safta. Siti. Siti Safta. So we're both, uh, both our languages are Semitic languages. Do you think Hamas would have fired rockets had Israel not attacked Palestinians in the mosques? This this is a good question. So storming storming Al-Aqsa was a clear, clear escalation that did not need to take place. I said this yesterday. There's very few reasons w- in which storming Al-Aqsa is going to be a good idea. Very few. Maybe a hostage situation, right? You need to get in there to, to save somebody's life. Sure. But... 
Other than that, very few reasons to storm Al-Aqsa. It's a clear escalation. Uh, it definitely took this conflict to the next level. And after that, Hamas did start shooting rockets. It's possible they would have shot rockets anyways in solidarity with uh, Sheikh Jarrah, you know, had they been evicted. I know that there's a court a court case that's meant was meant to be um, announced this week, but it was delayed 30 days. They may have shot rockets anyways. They sometimes do shoot rockets in solidarity with, with uh, you, you know, with the Palestinian cause that's not connected to Gaza. So it's hard to say, but there's no doubt that storming the is a clear, clear escalation. Um, let's see. We should have a stream where we rate cringe, rate cringe and other takes. Yeah, I agree. Let, let's do a cringe takes episode. That's a great idea. Thanks, Shai, for bringing that up. P-Ball, you want to come on? Well, I see you joined. Uh, I, I see you're in the waiting room. You want to hop on? Natruda, you're, if you're asking me if I'm Israeli, yes, I'm Israeli. I'm Israeli-American. My dad's Israeli. My mom is American. But most of my family uh, is Israeli and lives here. And on my dad's side, we made Aliyah in 1812 from Vilna, Lithuania. So 1812, 150 years before the establishment of the state of Israel. Okay, people is coming on. P-ball. P-ball. Um, can you hear me now? Yeah, what's up? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Um, there was some connection issues. I disconnected from the life, so yeah. What was there? Um, there, there was uh, some connection issues. Um, I couldn't... Uh, Noin or something. Also, the mic uh, had some problems. So yeah. Uh, all good. All good. What's on your mind? I don't. Know. I forgot again. I'm I'm so unlucky. Oh no one. Yeah, people. This is what you gotta do. You gotta write down what you want to say, and then when when you come on, you're already gonna have it written in front of you. Okay. So the way to beat bad luck is to just be more prepared. You got this. Yeah. Um, so th think about it. There's a few more things. So people are saying Vilna gang. There's more people here, I guess, from Vilna. And they're saying Hagaonmi Vilna, who's a very prominent person in, in Jewish history. So actually, my gr great grandfather, 10 generations ago, was a close friend of Hagaonmi Vilna. Um, he, his name was Moshe Maslish. If he's very, Mos Moshe Maslish is very well known in the Chabad community. There's a story of Moshe Maslis that he was a spy on Napoleon. He spoke something like 10 languages. He was a translator for Napoleon's army, but he was actually relaying information back to the Russians. And once Napoleon understood that information is being leaked, he accused, he accused Moshe Maslis um, of, of being a spy and all the other Russian, all the other French soldiers said, no, Moshe is great. He's, he's our friend. Napoleon said, I will feel his heartbeat. And if I feel the heartbeat of a revealed spy, then I'll kill him on the spot. Napoleon felt his heartbeat and it was calm. 
this is a famous family folklore that's uh, that's you know very well known in the Chabad community. Is it actually true? I have no idea. But uh, yeah, whenever I tell uh, whenever I tell Chabad people I'm I'm a Maislish, that's my grandma's maiden name. They uh, they tell me I have major yichis and that I should join them and that I could get married right away because of my yichis, which is uh, I guess uh, religious street cred, you could call it. We're gonna bring Tal Hagen on. Tal, what's up? Hey, how are you? What's up, Tal? Good, good to have you here. Uh, yeah, um, so most of you probably heard about the recent uh, barrage of rockets on Tel Aviv. What, es- what essentially occurred is a few hours ago, um, Hamas said that if Israel didn't stop um, attacking uh, buildings in Gaza, then they would fire Hamas, on, they would fire rockets in Tel Aviv. Um, when I originally heard this, I didn't really think much of it because in the past, usually what Hamas does is they try to have, you know, it's more symbolic. So they'll fire one or two rockets at Tel Aviv to say, oh, we got it. Um, I was in Tel Aviv at the time when this happened. Uh, I was riding home on my bike. And right as I was leaving the city, the first siren went off. I ran to the side of the street, threw my bike on the ground and went like put my hands over my head. Um, I actually took a video. I can show you with R if you like. Um, from yeah, we, we could um, we, we could show the video here. Here, uh, I probably can share my screen. Just tell me. Uh, share. In the meantime, I just realized there was a that this is also about family. Someone's asking where my family moved in 1812. Um, so Moshe Maslish moved in 1812 to Tzfat. He lived in Tzfat for two years and then moved to Hebron to help build the Jewish community in Hebron. Okay, add to stream. You ready? Cool. Um, yeah. Okay, so. This, let me just, can you hear that? Like the sound? Yep, I so, hear it. This is already about a minute in. I cut the video so I could upload it and people could see it. As it was actually interesting, I was on the ground and I looked at one of the buildings and I saw the reflections of the rockets coming up. So that's how I knew where to turn the camera. So I'll just be quiet. It's like 45 seconds. So you can see what it was like for someone who was there. You see the Iron Dome interception. Yeah, you can see the Iron Dome going up and hitting the building. There's one really large explosion. I don't know where it is. That it was a direct hit somewhere. That one. Fuck. That wasn't far from where I was. I don't know what. And so that happened. Um, and then I was trying to essentially get home. And so what I did is like on the bike, I quickly called my parents to tell them I was all right. Then my phone died. And then another sign went off. So I ran into a shelter in the side of the building. Then when it went off, I got on my bike again, started going home. And then another sign went off. And that's when I went in the shelter. That's when there was a direct hit in a busy industrial area about a kilometer from where I was. The entire building or entire area shook. Um, Then I went out again try and get home and as i was riding again it the siren went off again this time actually the rockets were already being intercepted only a few seconds after the siren went off so it didn't catch it in time in terms of people getting to the bomb shelter and then i was able to get home um 
I'm still pretty shaken up from it. it. It's, it's, this is, I think why it's important to understand when people make the claim that, uh, you know, the rockets are just, you know, they're like fireworks. They aren't they're, They The fact that they, you know, can't blow up an entire building doesn't mean that they're not deadly. If one of those rockets were to land anywhere near me, I would most likely be dead. Um, and there's already a few casualties from these recent rocket attacks. It's more these, wherever they hit, they do a lot of damage. If we didn't have the Iron Dome uh, shooting down these rockets that are going to hit heavy, heavily populated area, we would see a lot more civilian casualties. And thankfully, we don't need to worry about that as much because of the Iron Dome. Uh, and as I was in the bomb shirt, I was thinking about the fact that you know, as much as a, with the Dar's idea, this isn't currently how Israel's going to react to this event. For Israel to attack Tel Aviv, where you have the headquarters of the army, Israel has a lot more significance in terms of how you're going to respond. I mean, it should be the same in terms of when you hit places in the south, but it just isn't in terms of how we perceive these things. And so I, all I was thinking about is that, you know, in my eyes, we're headed to another war. Um, I thought that they were just going to fire one or two missiles and, you know, jump up, jump up and down thinking, yay, we, we shot Tel Aviv. But the fact that they, I saw reports that it was 130 rockets that were fired at once um, towards the middle of uh, Tel Aviv area. And, you know, I remember just standing in the bomb shelters, the different bomb shelters with people, and, you know, some of them were cursing out the Arabs, some of them cursing out the Palestinians, some of them were, you know, really upset about what was going on. Um and this is goes back to what I talked about yesterday about emotions and that emotions are now taking control of this conflict completely. Um, it's gonna, it's very hard to, um, you know, tell anyone to back down and not do anything when you find yourself terrified in a shelter, you know, you just, all you want to do is fight back and stop the rockets from hitting you. Um, and it's hard to put yourself out of that. And, uh, I'm just happy that, you know, sadly, it looks like there was one casualty. A 60-year-old woman was killed when they hit a bus, um, Israeli woman. And then we're probably going to see more civilian casualties from collateral damage from Israel firing on Hamas and Jihad Islamic uh, targets in Gaza. And so I'm not looking forward to having to see these horrific things in the news. And it does look like we are headed towards some type of large conflict. Uh, also in Israel, if you look in the news going on here, you have a lot of fighting on going on between Jews and Arabs in uh, different towns around Israel. A friend of mine who lives in Lod, uh, there was a synagogue, which is a Jewish temple, which was um, burned down by Arabs. Um, they were also throwing rocks at Jews around the area. Then you had in Wamle, you had Jews who were attacking Arab cars. Uh, it's, it's getting out of control. And I don't think any of the prominent activists or public leaders are trying to do anything to de-escalate tensions. I think if anything, they're only just adding to the, to the flames and we are headed towards something horrific. And I think that it's very hard when things like this happen for us not to take sides. Um, all we want to do is take sides and, you know, be strong against the enemy, but it's important for us to remember why we're here in Zulha, why we're here in groups together and that, not everyone on the other side is the enemy. Um, and that a lot of us just want to live our lives the way we are. Um, and just remember that. Thank you, Tal, for that update. As uh, hard as it is to hear, and I'm, I'm very happy you're, you're all right. 
Um, I think it, it's it's great you came on because it does demonstrate the very real um, side of this. You know, it, it's often, as you said, it's often thought that these are like fireworks. Um, they don't really kill people. Well, first of all, they do kill people, but they traumatize anybody who needs to run to a bomb shelter. And you, you don't notice that it caused you some trauma until the next time you hear the siren and you get that feeling in your chest and you know it's some level of, of PTSD. Um, thankfully, we do have the Iron Dome because many more lives would be lost had we not had it. A and common thing yeah, yeah. um, during after events like this, for example, during the Gaza War in 2014, which was also termed Operation Protective Edge, um, ambulance sirens had to change the way that they sounded because it would freak people out um, every time that a siren yeah. went off and it sounded like the bomb alarm sirens. Also for me, as someone who I um, actually, the, the only times I was ever stuck in a siren in the past was once in Zuhuan where I, where I live with my parents, used to live with my parents, where um, I just heard them going over. And the other time was when Hezbollah fired missiles into Israel from uh, Lebanon, but they didn't hit anywhere close. And I thought like, in my eyes, while I was riding back and trying to get out of Tel Aviv before the rocket started, I thought it's not a big deal. Here's the siren, I go to the side of the street. But the second the siren went off, all the, all the rationale left my mind. And the first thing I did was throw the bike to the side and just duck for cover on the ground. Um, all the whole, you know, I thought maybe I'll just keep going or maybe I'll just, you know, park my bike, lock it up and go sit somewhere. But just fear and panic overwhelms you the second that um, the right. goes off. All it takes is one ro- rocket to not get hit by the air and to fall anywhere near you and you'll be dead. I mean, it's sad that the Gazans doesn't have something like the Iron Dome. Yeah, like, yeah, like the Dome saves a lot of lives. It's something great. Like, yeah, the, yeah. I mean, the real solution is for us to stop fighting. But if if we want to, the first measure that Hamas could take to better protect the Gazans is to build them bomb shelters. Uh, two, not to shoot rockets from uh, densely populated areas. Um. And obviously, three, we change our, our um, policy of retaliation. That would also save Gaza lives. So, so there's a lot that can, a lot of steps that can be taken on both sides to uh, minimize harm that currently is not being taken. I, there's actually a question I want to answer that um, Zohar asked. Um, just right, right now. Zohar asked, uh, do you think the, the current escalation and the impact it has on the coalition negotiation process is a coincidence. You could well, you could I, take this first, Tom. So I, I don't think it's um, coincidental in the sense that it's conspiratorial, that it was planned to have this escalation so that Netanyahu could. That's the way that I view it. But however, what we have seen is that ever since the first election, we're, we're already slowly going into our fifth election. We've already had four elections in this country. Is that with each election, the country is being divided more and more in terms of right and left. And there, there's no voices of reason in, ter- of, in the Israeli leadership, let alone the Palestinian leadership at the moment. And what's currently happening now, in my, in my eyes, was the last um, draw for a lot of people. The events that occurred um, in Jerusalem on Jerusalem Day were because of a ton of failures by the Israeli government and the Palestinian Authority previously in the months beforehand that these escalations, these things were happening beforehand. You had cries for violence from both sides. You had um, Arab 
Arab uh, youngsters attacking Jews in Jerusalem. You had right-wing supremacists, Jews, um, some cheering death for Arabs in, uh, in Jerusalem as well. And no one put a stop to this. Our government didn't stop it. They didn't call for peace and they didn't call for this to all be subsided and this is not right. They took sides. And this has led to the conflict now. I put full responsibility for the recent um, issues right now on the Palestinian Authority and the Israeli government. They're responsible for this, not one side. Because when, what I don't like is seeing that, oh, it started with um, um, the uh, village, or no, it started with the Al-Aqsa riots. No, it started with our government dividing the people by, you're left, no, you're right, you're not a real Jew, you're a fake Jew, you don't love Israel, you hate Israel, you're not pro-Palestinian, you're a Jew lover, uh, you don't care about the Palestinian cause, and all we've done is divide ourselves. And it got to a point where no one cares about talking anymore, and all they want to do is fight. And this is this is what we led to. This war is because of those failures. This upcoming war, hopefully not, but I'm not too hopeful at the moment. Yeah, yeah, I don't have much to add to that. I think you uh, pretty much covered it. Zohar is asking, do you find the rhetoric of the Israeli military leadership stating you're willing to continue indefinitely is particularly helpful? No, not at all. Not, not helpful at all. No. Uh, no. We, we, look, leadership, good leadership understands de-escalation, how to de-escalate. It seems like this is something that's clearly missing from, from both governments. Not only do we not de-escalate well, we seem to do everything to escalate and and Zohar, that kind of leads to your first question: Is is this escalation intentional? Does this help uh, BB form a coalition? Or, well, I guess BB's chance to form a coalition is up. So, what 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 do you what do you think the move is that it helps Bennett form a coalition? Like, what's the what, what's the idea? But but Bennett's not in power, right? Oh oh oh, you're you're saying that the escalation will will cut out. Um, the Ram, the the Arab party from the coalition, and put Bennett. Is it, uh, yeah, I, I think I know what you're saying. Is, is that the theory, Zohar? So to, just to fill people in, we you know we've been in a political deadlock for a few years now. We've had uh, four elections in the past two years, and we very well may be heading to a fifth one. Uh, BB failed at being able to form a government after this fourth election, and now it's Bennett Bennett's attempt. And it seems like he needs the the Israeli Arab party in order to do so. So it could be theorized that this escalation will make Bennett forming a coalition with the Israeli Arab party much more difficult. So it's kind of a way to stop Bennett in his tracks. I, 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 if that's what you're getting at, I see what you're saying. Um, I could, yeah, I could see that. Yeah. That's uh, oh, is that the? Yeah, it's just uh, just more of what was happening. Do you have any live updates from what's going on? I'm currently looking. I'm waiting because I'm guessing Israel's going to respond. I know that Netanyahu is going to be speaking soon about what. So happened. goes. Hmm, maybe a British parliamentary system doesn't work in the Middle East. Yeah, I I agree. I think we should uh, reform the system here. BB speaking soon. So it, it's so clear knowing him that his rhetoric is not going to be one of de-escalation. It's going to be one of strength and we will fight and and um, destroy our enemies. But we, we've been hearing this rhetoric from him for, for over a decade. 
Hamas is no weaker than, than they've been when they came into power in 2008. So um, it's all lip service. Zach says, bring on the dictatorship. I, I would support a dictatorship that was run by artificial intelligence. So I would support um, benevolent, benevolent AI dictatorship if we could program something like that. I wouldn't support human dictatorship because even if you get one generation of a benevolent dictator who inherits it after that, uh, who says they're going to be benevolent? There, there is like a, a successful case of benevolence dictatorship in a, in Singapore, but most most dictators have been pretty brutal, and it's for two reasons: those who are most attracted to power, or those who are most likely oh, yeah. to abuse power. Sure. Right, people, people, look. Yeah, yeah, go on. Wait, go on. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. Those who are most attracted to power are those who are most likely to abuse power, but also power very much corrupts people. So it's generally not good to have a monopoly of power. I, I know that was probably not a serious suggestion, but I decided to give a, little, a few thoughts on it. Dictatorship. Yeah, people, what, what's on your mind? Like, um, dictatorship isn't bad. Like, actually, uh, most dictators are just bad people. But, like, it's, it's just, it's, uh, like, in Singapore, like, they're not very corrupt, you see. It's, it's, it, they have some form of dictatorship, but it's not, it's not, it's not that bad. So yeah, but also dictatorship is bad because you're not uh, the people are not choosing their leader. So yeah. Uh, Jeff first <laughs> people with a hot take. I'll agree that's a hot take. Um, yeah, I mean, I uh, you know I support each individual's uh, each group's uh, right to self determine. So if uh, if we end up not being one nation of Israelis and Palestinians okay. and and people. You want to work with other Palestinians to make sure Palestine is a dictatorship. Uh, what's that background noise? If, if, yeah, just mute yourself if, if you're watching. Something. I don't want dictatorship. Ah, uh, you were just saying you don't want it, but it's like, not. I don't want dictatorship. You're just saying it's not always that bad. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, like I don't want dictatorship here. Like, I'm just saying it's not that bad, but dictatorship. Like here, and not here. I guess it would depend on who the dictator is. I guess that's how we should. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Zahar is asking, do you think the U.S. State, State Department can do more to de-escalate the situation? Yeah, yeah. I think I think the international community we we, we see it. Um, Historically, when there's when there's war, that they've been able to come in and help negotiate certain ceasefires. The ceasefires don't always work or last. But yeah, I, I think America does have the ability to help America, Egypt. Even even you know we, we now have new friendships with um, with uh, UAE and Bahrain, uh, semi right Morocco as well, and semi Saudi Arabia. So it, it would it would be nice to. See to see not America get in the mix, but other Middle Eastern countries get involved here. I think that's like a more organic approach to dealing with Middle Eastern um, issues if Middle Eastern countries work together on them. But uh, anything that gets de-escalation, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd support it, whether it's America or Middle Eastern countries.
Um, do any of those countries support a Palestinian state? Yeah, Jeff, I believe all of them support a Palestinian state. Um, which countries are? Which countries are? Uh, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, UAE, Morocco. But I think they care more. I think they care more about their own self-interest than a Palestinian state. That's that's really what these Abraham Accords are all about. It's about countries saying, uh, "I have." more to gain from being friends with Israel than being in constant, uh, let's call it light yeah, conflict because we weren't in active war. Yeah. It's everyone's, all nations are working in their own self-interest. Um, Shai goes, America is not an honest broker. If anything, they solidify the perception of Israel as a foreign power. Uh, yeah, no, I, I hear that. I don't, I don't, I mentioned this briefly yesterday. It's it's hard to trust America and and their intention. Uh, it's not like they have a good history of making the Middle East a a more peaceful place. So yeah, there was a one of the rockets hit a tr the Trans Israel pipeline uh, down south. What, what did it hit? Uh, one a pipeline called the Trans Israel pipeline, which is uh, I think one sec. Where is it? In Ashkelon. Elat Ashkelon, you said. Uh, it's Ashkelon and Elat. Interesting. So I'm seeing a different perspective. People saying they would never want Saudi involved. Yeah, I mean, I, I get what you're saying, right? Like a, a, a brutal, um, I guess you could call them a, a brutal monarchical dictatorship. Yeah, I, I hear that. I just... I'm trying to think if we're going to have four nations get involved and help, who should it be like our neighbors or America and Europe? I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm open to hearing a case being made, but it seems like the, the more natural approach is to really start solving conflicts from, from within the Middle East. Chaim Ifra goes, the Saudi government is a bunch of state capitalist pigs. They don't care about either side of this conflict. They just want money. Yeah, I mean, I agree, but I'd say that's actually true for most countries in the world. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, okay. I guess we'll start wrapping it up. Yeah. Final questions here. We're, wow, two thirty. I actually didn't. Where would the time go? Um, cool. I, I guess I'll just put something out there. So, we we were orga trying to organize a panel on uh, Sheikh Jarrah, and um, we don't know if it's the appropriate time to do it. Not that that is not relevant, but because it, you know the the conflict has escalated far beyond that at this point, and. I'm not sure if we should focus on that until things de-escalate a little bit and instead just keep doing these uh, night evening sessions like we've been doing. I'd like to hear from, from the community what you think our approach should be. Should we do the panel on Sheikh Jarrah or should we wait for now? And secondly, we were meant to have a debate uh, Thursday about two competing definitions of anti-Semitism, IRA and JDA. We postpone that also because of the situation. Just doesn't feel right to be talking about other things when uh, there's such escalation and, and hundreds of rockets and missiles being shot at one another on a daily basis. Um, 
Someone's asking, will there be an after party? Yeah, we could. Uh, okay, we're seeing some support. I agree. Keep uh, on these daily discussions. Zohar Singh, try to bring on Palestinian activists. Yes, yeah, so the, the panel on Sheikh Jarrah, we're actually trying to bring on somebody who lives there, some Palestinians who live there, or at the very least are living in Jerusalem. So, yeah, that, that's that's definitely uh, what we're trying to do. Uh, that, that's the goal. The question is now, is now the right time? I'm not sure. I'll sleep on it. If anybody has suggestions on that, uh, let me know. Wait a couple of weeks when we have a clear picture of court decision. Ira JDA can certainly wait. Yeah, Antenna, I think I think this is a is a good suggestion. Uh, okay, we're going to continue these daily. It seems like they're they're good. I mean, we we see we have many people interested. The community has decided. That's it. We're doing these dailies. Maybe Friday we'll uh, do a little Shabbat. We'll take Friday off, not for religious purposes, but for spiritual purposes, at least for myself. That's why I try to have a day of rest. Um, we're going to do an after party in Discord. This conversation will continue. Uh, Discord is a place where we engage in dialogue around the clock. And um, if you want to join the after party in Discord, you click the link I just sent. On the left-hand side, you'll see it says lounge. Click on lounge and you'll be connected to the after party. If you're new here, please subscribe like this video if you don't like what you see uh give it a down vote just express yourself we like uh we like expression um and 26 tell me to have some chillin yeah i i honestly i might have some chillin on saturday morning sure um someone's asking who's p-ball p-ball you want to share who you are to you know what you what you can tell people about yourself um I don't really want, but. Oh, good. P-Ball, uh, what I'll say is P-Ball is a Palestinian, um, and he has a YouTube channel called Palestine Ball, where he might makes Palestine Ball videos similar to what his logo is. Um, that's it. Yeah. I'll just say that, everyone. You were going to say? Sorry. Like the idea of vengeance. What's up? Uh, what? Would Would you say, people? Oh yeah. So, so the idea of um, the idea of vengeance is stupid because if if uh, if somebody strikes you, if and you want to strike back, you strike them back. He will strike you again, and he will end. You will end. Yeah. In that, it it will be in an endless cycle, and th that loop won't end. That's what happened in 2014. Many people died because of this loop. Like, imagine that three people died, ends with an invasion. Like, the quote, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind, is honest. Like, True. It's also happening nowadays. Amen, brother. Yesterday and today. People are dying. Very, very well put, people. Um, cool. With that, we're, we're going to wrap it up. Um, anyone living on the land, stay safe. Um, hopefully we reach de-escalation soon and even more yet, um, better yet than de-escalation is a long-term solution, which that's what we're here to work on. Um, and yeah, we'll see you, uh, probably tomorrow night and definitely Thursday night. Um, if anyone wants to reach out to myself, you can find my contact information in the description. 
If you want to get in touch with Tyler Peeball, they're very active in our Discord. You could join the Discord and get in touch with them there. I'm seeing uh, people say Peeball for for government. I agree. He's the he's the he's the future leader of the Palestinian people, uh, without a doubt. And with that, signing off, friends. Stay safe.